This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your first stop for the best in Western style. And by the way, you don't have to be into the Western look to grab a good looking pair of boots. I recently got a pair of ostrich skin round tip boots, and I'm warm with my suit. These boots are so versatile that I can throw them on with a full head to toe suit. And Anthony Smith came right up to me and he's asking me where I got them. Well, I told him the only place to get them, Tacovas. And they have a seasonal limited edition offering. It's right now, this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, accessory, and more. My wife just surprised me with the ostrich wallet and a belt for my birthday, in case you've seen me. I feel like I look pretty sharp in it. I truly do, and Tacova's has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style, plus their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary beverage or two, and shop for new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience quite like it. If you can't make it into the store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-B-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your favorite pair of boots today. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, guys, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly on to you. I haven't skipped a beat using Mint Mobile services. I have a great service even when I'm traveling for over less than 70% of what I was paying before. Listen to Uncle Chael and say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash chale. That's mintmobile.com slash chale. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash chale. $45 upfront payment required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
guys happy wednesday and thank you for joining another special episode of your welcome my partner ryan just asked me a question i started answering the question he goes chael stop i i want to do this on video i think this is an interesting story and all he asked me he said uh when was the first time you were over 200 pounds and i actually knew the answer to that question i'll tell you why i knew the answer is uh i had fought in the ufc my first fight was against babalu at 205 pounds and when I got to the scale, the fight was at the Mohegan Sun, and the weigh-ins at that time, 2005, were not a spectacle or a show of any sort like they are now. They're not a TV show. There's not an audience there. It's not... You weigh in because the commission makes you weigh in. So I show up. There's no one there. I mean, there's Babalu and I. The other guys weigh in. Just to set that stage for you, but again, the fight's at 205 pounds. I get on the scale. I have my clothes on. They actually make me take my shoes off, the commission. You must remove your shoes. I took my shoes off. Everything else, I'm dressed. Shirt, pants, belt, socks, underwear. I mean, you get it. 193 pounds. And I remember Dana White looking at the scale, looking at me, looking at the scale, looking at me like back and forth. Like his head, he didn't even say a word. He was just kind of thinking, why did we bring this guy in to fight 205? Now, one thing about that, though, is I had always competed up in weight class uh, after my sophomore year. Through my sophomore year, I remember here, let's back up my own story here, but back up to my freshman year, high school wrestling, I was one of the top guys in the state, if I may shine my own wheels. I was ranked number three, but I could have won that tournament on any given day, and there wasn't really a scenario where I was going to be less than third. We'd had the whole season. I wrestled everybody. This is my ranking going into state. Only tournament I've ever entered in my life I did not place in. Only tournament. But I remember going into that tournament with one goal, and that was to make weight. Getting down to 115 pounds, particularly at that time in life, you guys remember being 14, being a freshman. Your weight could do anything over a weekend. You could grow an inch. Remember when that would happen? You could be up eight pounds over the course of a week having done nothing wrong. So getting down to 115 was just a real challenge for me. And I remember my only goal was to make weight. I come back my sophomore year not learning any of the lessons that I took away from my freshman year. And I wrestled 130 pounds. Exact same goal. My goal is to only make weight. I could have won that tournament. It was one of these things. There was no energy and I I just couldn't do it. There was a guy at 136 pounds who I was scared of. I was trying to be away from this guy at 136. So that's why I ended up at, at 130. At any rate, I learned my lesson after that. I'm never cutting weight again. Not gonna happen. And I went on my junior year 157, and I went on my senior year to 185, and there was a weight called 172, and I weighed 173, so it would have been one pound. I'm not going to do it. Absolutely not going to cut weight again, wrestle at 185. I bring that to you because when I got into college, I would go with the bigger guys, and they brought me in to be a 177 pounder. And there was another weight class in college called 190. And I had lost my wrestle lot. 
I lost to my teammate Troy Hughes in the wrestle-off for 177. So I wasn't even the varsity guy. I wasn't going to get to compete. And I went to the coach. I went to Chuck one day. And I thought this was going to be a whole back and forth. I, I remember right where he was. One of those moments in life. He was sitting down on the wall. And I said, hey, Chuck, I want to go 190. And that's usually a major conversation. you got scholarship guys, guys that are recruited, coaches that are laying out the map. I wasn't making the team at 177. I wasn't exactly the guy they're going to bend over backwards to help. So I said this to Chuck, see where we could go with this. So I'm going to go 190. And he looks up at me and says, okay. So I just, I got the answer I want. I just turn and hit the locker room. All of a sudden, I'm a 190-pounder. I bring that to you because I didn't make the team. I lost, I was JV, I was backup in my own room at 177. That same year at 190, I was an All-American. So it was one of these things where I just did better with bigger guys. So anyway, when I got into fighting, same thing. I'm going 205. I weigh 193, 191, whatever. I'm going 205. I am never cutting weight again. And I will even tell you from college, the college season is very long. Think of an MMA season. Think of the grind that you go through in MMA. Look, you're going to weigh in three times a year. You're going to compete three times a year. In college, it's every single week, sometimes twice. Two weigh-ins. Multiple matches if it's a tournament. You could have six matches in a week very easily. Duel on Thursday, tournament on Saturday. You could very easily get six matches and two weigh-ins. I bring that to you because the grind is very real. And amongst my own teammates... The house I lived, I got roommates, but they're on the team. Watching the way they would have to to suffer and what they would have to go through. By the end of the season, a lot of guys weren't still around. I bring that to you because when I became an All-American, I think some of that was just the other guys I was competing against were tired. Even though they were bigger, I, was fr- I wasn't doing any of that stuff they were doing. I was doing my workout, going home. I'm on the couch, doing my books, social life, watching TV. They're starving. They're going for, for runs at 11 p.m. then having to wake up at 6 a.m. and go do another run to get the weight under control. So these were just some of the lessons that I learned and why I wasn't ever going to cut weight again. So after I had my match with Babalu and the UFC was aware of what I actually weighed, they gave me a contract specifically and exclusively at 185. Ties into my buddy Ryan's question because he said to me, when's the first time you passed 200 pounds? So my whole life, it would have been very handy to weigh 200 pounds. I just didn't. I even had certain times in my life where though I didn't want to cut weight, I also didn't want to be underweight. My senior year in high school, I weighed 173 and the weight was 185. And oh my goodness, it makes me sick. Physically sick, just on memory of how I felt back then because I pushed so hard to gain weight. I had two wrestling practices a day, but I would lift weights twice a day as well. I would start my day, there was something called Insure. Insure is still out there now, but it's, it comes in a little, you pull the cap off and drink it kind of like a V8, but it's, it's kind of a health drink in terms of it's got X amount of sugars and X amount of proteins. You get about 360 calories in this little thing. There's supposed to be some vitamins and nutrients. I used to drink six of those at breakfast, and my mother would make me a chicken fried steak with gravy. I mean, I was doing everything to gain weight, and this was at six in the morning. All day I lived like that, as much as I could eat. Now, that might sound kind of cool, particularly to to people that know the other end of it, which is cutting weight. As hard as cutting weight is, 
trying to gain weight and being gorged and stuffed all day, it's equally as uncomfortable, I must tell you. So even though I didn't want to be under, I could never get over 200 pounds. So I weighed 193, the UFC gives me a contract to fight at 185. Within two weeks, I weighed 202. It was just one of those things where I didn't want to cut weight. Even 193 down to 185, as easy as that, that'd probably take me an hour. If I had to go lose eight pounds right now, how long would it take me? That would take me an hour, hour and 15 at the absolute most. Now all of a sudden I weighed 202 pounds. Never did anything different. Didn't try to bulk up. Didn't try to do anything. Decided mentally I had to go the other way. There was something about mentally knowing I was going the other way made me gain weight. That was the answer to Ryan's question. He thought it was interesting. He thought I should bring it to you guys. Tell me what you think. Are you guys seeing what's going around with Tom Cruise? So Tom Cruise is the skunk at the garden party because he broke bad on a movie set. He started dressing down all these underlings. They quit, and that's always a dick move. That's always perceived as a dick move when the big, powerful, rich guy in the room comes down and then, and then yells at other people. I have to tell you two sides to this. First off, that's what was caught on video, and to make believe Tom did not come and speak to them like adults at some point before he lost his cool, I think is a stretch to start with. And moreover, you may not like the tone and the demeanor he did that. If you listen to his words, Tom Cruise is 100% correct. He's on a set in the middle of a pandemic and he tells the people that he has created a job for and an opportunity. You have to follow the rules, which largely just means put on your damn mask. I am on the phone every day with the insurance company. The insurance company finds out you're not following the rules in a pandemic. They will pull the bond and this whole movie's done. The only person on that set who cannot be replaced is Tom Cruise. You can get a new director, you can get a new video guy, you can get new editors, you can get new stuntmen, new stunt coordinators, a new guy for wardrobe, somebody to make the coffee and park the trailers. The only person you can't replace is Tom Cruise. This isn't Mission Impossible 1, this is Mission Impossible 7, which works because of him. Oh, and by the way, he's also doubling as the producer. So when he says he's talking to an insurance company that will pull the bond... A a movie is very unique in that if you leave off somewhere, you do not come up and pick up where you left off. It doesn't work that way. If they pull the plug on the movie, they do not revisit it eight months later and just take the footage that they have and take what they and then couple it together. It's done and it's done forever. Not to mention those people that are contracted are contracted for X amount of time. You will lose them all. Oh, and by the way, they will make you pay them. If you pull the movie for any, you are going to pay them their rate that you agreed on. So there's no way to come and revisit it later. It's done. I bring that to you because there was a similar situation a number of years ago with Christian Bale. Christian Bale was right. I took Christian Bale's side. And he looked like a jerk because he was the powerful guy in the room. And he's dressing down people on the ranking ladder that are underneath him. I get where that looks like a jerk move. Bale was right. Those guys should have shut up when he was working. They were throwing off his focus. And the only one here that's not replaceable was Bale. That's just the reality. Tom Cruise is getting a bad rap for this. And anybody that thinks he was a jerk, he may have sounded angry. He may have looked aggressive. Focus on his words and his message. Tom Cruise was right. I want to thank one of my new sponsors for supporting this show. And I know a lot of my listeners, especially the hard-headed ones, are going to love them. Do you love peanut butter? Do you love whiskey? Then you're going to love Rams Point Peanut Butter Whiskey. Rams Point 
locks horns with smooth peanut butter flavor to create an intense spirit worth fighting for. Enjoy it as a straight shot. Put it on the rocks or as an amazing cocktail, Ram's Point Whiskey is a fun addition to any party or that special night with someone special. They also have recipes that will blow your mind. Let's start with the Ram's Point PB&J shot. Imagine you're at a party. The host says, who wants a shot of PB&J? Of course you're going to be in. One part Ram's Point, one part grape liqueur, and you've just created an incredible new version of an old favorite. And you can add other flavored liquors like strawberry, cherry, or wild berry to create your own version. And this one is genius. Imagine putting your favorite peanut butter around the rim of a glass. Add a shot of Ram's Point peanut butter whiskey and you've just created magic. Make sure to embrace hard-headed spirit this holiday season with Ram's Point peanut butter whiskey. Whether it's getting together with a group of friends, safely of course, or that someone special, or if you're just looking to relax, Ram's Point peanut butter whiskey is the way to go. And for the truly hard-headed, check out Ram's Point peanut butter whiskey on Twitter and always hashtag appropriately. Go check it out now. No good deed goes unpunished. You guys are familiar with that expression. I have never in my time on this earth seen that applied more than it gets applied to Dana White. I have never seen anybody more guilty of the adage, no good deed goes unpunished. So here's the latest narrative, okay? UFC is cutting guys. Same as Bellator did a month ago. Bellator did 30, UFC is going to have to do 60. Okay. Those are tough. You're talking about personnel decisions. These, these are very tough. So somebody along the way comes out with, Dana is cutting the expensive guys to keep the cheaper guys. Now, first off, that would make sense. There would be no apology or explanation needed. That would actually make good logical sense. I understand that we're not dealing with mathematicians or even very intelligent people here in MMA. So somehow this looks as something nefarious. Dana comes back and says, that's, that's actually not what we're doing. Let me explain this to you guys. What's happening here is guys who have been given opportunities are the ones that are being cut in exchange for those who are not yet had their opportunity. Now, where does that tie in? Sure, there's a finance, but that makes sense financially. The guy who's been given an opportunity and who is out there and who has done it more times makes more money. That's just the way the scale MMA works. The more times you walk out there, the more money you continue to make and the more worth that you have. The problem you have if, if your Dana isn't sitting down and trying to crunch numbers and be a Grinch somewhere. It's looking at it for who's already had an opportunity. Who's already main evented, co-mated, had opportunity spots, been put in title elimination fights, had title fights. Who's already been pushed into the spotlight, done the media, and didn't quite get over, or did get over, and light is starting to dim. In exchange for who is new, up and coming, hasn't done any of those things yet, hasn't proved, but hasn't unproven themselves. Sure, there's a direct correlation. The guy who's already had opportunities, who you've exhausted a couple of options with and gave opportunity, yes, he's going to make more, but that's the, that's the one and only tie-in. I only bring that to you because I just think it's so bizarre that anybody would say that to Dana. 
the most generous man possibly in America would even be questioned about attempting to save money. Oh, and by the way, he has shareholders and is running a business and would have every, every right to do just that. It's just not what happened. Okay, save that thought because at the same time, Dana weighs in on 155 pounds. He says there will be no interim championship at 155. Great. Why that does not look like clarity to any of you? That is the most clarity we have been given in that weight class in seven weeks. That weight class is a hot potato. That is a mess to the highest degree. You have Khabib, who has said, say la vie. Dana thought, well, you know what? He was caught up in the moment. It was his moment. I'm going to give him that moment, but I'm not going to actually take the title. I'm going to let him think about this decision. Great, cool move. But you have Conor and Poirier lined up, which many have predicted, myself included, early on, that would be for an interim championship, if not the undisputed championship. You then also have what appears to be a bracket. Because Chandler appears, I'm guessing this, I'm guessing this based on the pieces left on the board, Gaethje and Chandler have something really cool with each other that's going to be a lot of fun for everybody coming up. I'm guessing. You then have Oliveira, who has kinked the hose more than anybody else. I mean, Oliveira has really thrown a wrench into things of what are we going to do with him? What is next for him? And Oliveira, while his skills and his performance were grand slams, his manipulation of the business leaves a little bit to be desired. By example, and many people won't ever understand this, the cycle of a fight is the day you sign, the day you sign and go to your social media, to the day the media will pick up on it and decide what fight they think is interesting and invite you onto their shows, okay? Until you walk out, when you're done, after the match, you will have two days. You have exactly 48 hours. You will have Sunday, you will have Monday. Come Tuesday morning, the news cycle changes. And that is largely due to Ariel Hawani and Luke Thomas, who hold Monday shows. They are the first MMA show to come to the table, and they do not do it until Monday. Sunday gets to be a recoup and a travel day. I bring that to you because of those two guys, Luke Thomas and Errol Hawani. That is why Monday is signified as the day because come Tuesday, it never happened. And you're only looking to what is this Saturday. What's Bellator got going, what's the UFC got going, and what is next? Sports just don't go in reverse. All of Vera did a very good job from the day he signed the contract. He did an excellent job in the competition. He missed the two days. And I see athletes do this all the time, not understanding. Well, you know, I'm tired right now. I'll come back to it in a week. Nobody cares in a week. It doesn't work. Do not throw those two days away. Do not throw that 48-hour news cycle away. Because you will not have an opportunity come 72 hours. It is done, and we're moving in one direction, which is forward, not back. And it was a miss. I'm being very nitpicky here on Oliveira, but don't forget, Oliveira is in a very, very nitpicky conversation right now. The competition that he is in is head-to-head with Conor McGregor. It is head-to-head with Dustin Poirier. It is head-to-head with Michael Chandler. It is head-to-head with Justin Gaethje, and it's going to be resolved one way in the media. 
He may get locked in there with one of those guys. There is no scenario where he's locked in there with all four of those guys. Do you see the problem? Who is going to uh, emerge is going to be dependent fully on what the fan and viewer and pundits see and go out and report. Perception will be reality. The best guy will be determined by your eyes and your mouth. Which means he needs to use his eyes and mouth to beat these guys. It's the only way he can do it. That's just the competition he's in right now. I'm being nitpicky. I'm being hard on Charles. I don't mean to be. I just want to use him as an example because Dana has finally offered one piece of clarity, which is that we're not going to do the interim title. Next belt that goes up at 55 is the real deal. Who is it going to be between? And by the way, if Khabib does not come back, you've just doubled your opportunity. It is so hard to get a world title fight. It is so hard. You just doubled the chances that you could get one. Oh, and by the way, we're down to the final five guys. Two of them are going to get the opportunity, not one. If Khabib doesn't come back, two of them. It is so important to play this game. It is so important to understand from the day you sign the contract to you have the competition plus 48 hours. Nobody wants to work after the match. They're tired. They want to return to their family. The last thing they want to do is talk MMA. And some of them give themselves as short as one week off. Some of them give two. And some of them take a full month. But the bottom line is you can't do it. The time you walk out of that cage, you have 48 hours and the clock is ticking. You've got to maximize that. You have to get your message and align your troops. Tony Ferguson got more media since that fight than Charles did. That's a knock on Charles. I don't know that Oliveira knows he is in a fight right now. And he doesn't need to and he doesn't get to use these. He's got to use this. He missed that 48-hour opportunity. Charles Oliveira just might be the best one of them. I'm not sure you could take any of the other guys we're talking about and just use Tony as an example and that any one of those guys could win every every minute of a, of a fight with Tony Ferguson, let alone every round. Charles Oliver might be the best one, but that's not what it's about. It's going to be about perception. Charles has a big knock against him, which is he went first. Guys, think of a court of law. Just think of a court of law. Whoever has the last word has the greatest opportunity. There's something with the last word, which is why the judicial system gives that to the defense. The defense gets to go less to give this person every opportunity to convince 12 of his peers that weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty that he didn't do it. Whoever goes last has the greatest chance. Charles went first. So Connor and Poirier instantly, just by logistics, are in a better spot. Not to mention their main event. Gaethje and Chandler are in a very unique spot. And I would argue more over Chandler because he's new. The guy from out of town wearing the white shirt always knows the most. I've seen this a million times just in my sports career. I'll be working with coaches, the greatest coaches in the world. I see them every day and you lose appreciation. We have some guy come in from out of town to do a seminar and we're all on bended knee waiting to hear everything he said. The guy from out of town with the white shirt knows the most. It's one of these things. Chandler's in a very sweet spot right now. But make no mistake, there's a fight going on. Chandler is fighting Oliveira. Chandler is fighting Poirier. He's fighting the power of Conor Mania right now. 
And so are all those other guys. And the first thing they need to understand is the recipe and the blueprint. The day you sign the contract, then you have your performance plus 48 hours. If you miss those 48 hours, it's this, it's no more powerful or no more foolish than minishing any other of the two steps. There's only three. There's only three steps. Starts with your social media. Sees where that goes. Has the competition itself plus 48. You're welcome. Is wrestling the least effective martial art today? I was asked that question, and I was pissed. I was stunned that I was asked it. I was insulted. I started thinking about it. And it is very interesting. It is a very fair question, and I'm not sure that the answer isn't yes. Wrestling is the least effective martial art today. Now, hear me out. I'm not a traitor to my own craft. But there was a time in this sport thanks to a man named Dan Severn, where we saw how important getting that top position was, understanding the 10-9 must system, riding out the clock, and beating your opponent. No matter what art your opponent came from, if you could take him down and stay there, you were going to win. Then wrestlers got better at it. Now it's not just going to stay here. I'm going to pound. I'm going to finish fights, right? The Randy Coutures, the Tito Ortizes that really started to understand ground and pound. The Godfather, Mark Coleman, the Mark Kerrs of the world. Then you had the real advanced guys, Mark Kerr again, who would learn to pass guard. He would learn just enough about jiu-jitsu. The Josh Barnett's of the world that you weren't going to submit them. In fact, they weren't even going to be in danger and they were going to pound you out or maybe stretch you. But the sport kept evolving, and I've never thought about it in this context. Is wrestling today the least effective? I'm not saying unimportant. The toughness, the grit, the physicality, the grind, the understanding of the weight cut in all fairness. The mental of walking out, two people, lights on, scoreboard. Wrestling comes in extremely handy. Wrestling is still amongst the kings. But is wrestling... The ability to take a guy from this realm and put him into this realm, the least effective sport in martial art. Boy, that's an interesting question that just might be true that I don't want to be true. We are still seeing guys use wrestling. I think we could go back as recently as last weekend. Oliveira, Tony Ferg. Oliveira was able to get on top. Had Oliveira done everything that Oliveira did, just as many strikes, just as much output, just, but he was on bottom, we're having a totally different conversation about who the winner was. That wrestling is what allowed him to get on top. So we're seeing where that comes in handy, but to act as though Oliveira was out there wrestling would not be true. He used it briefly, and then he went to work in jiu-jitsu. That's where the, pals, uh, the passing, the mount, the armbar, protecting himself, the defense, all started to come in. The strikes that Oliveira landed, that certainly isn't wrestling. So even though he used wrestling, was wrestling the least effective of what Charles Oliveira did? Arguably. Arguably, but there's a conversation because he could not have gone to step number two without having step one, which in his case was wrestling. I don't just mean to use Oliveira's fight with Tony Ferguson as the end-all, be-all to this conversation. I think that it's a meaningful conversation. I was going back last night, and I was watching some old UFCs. Came across a match with everybody's favorite fighter, Ensign Inouye, taking on Royce Alger. Royce Alger is as tenacious of an athlete as you're going to come across. In fact, Dan Gable called him the most intense athlete I've ever coached. 
two-time NCAA champion and did many other wonderful things. But Royce Alger was a rough guy. He just didn't ever practice MMA for what it was. He did not spar. He didn't have MMA coaches. He was a rough guy. He was in great shape who loved to compete that, what, that had wrestling knowledge. And NOA was able to catch his arm in something fairly basic and beat him. But at that time, it wasn't basic. An arm bar and extending and rolling over and belly down, it wasn't basic. We'd never even seen it before. I'd never seen it as a viewer. Royce had never seen it as a competitor, but it did bring into attention. Okay, Royce has position, and this is back in the 90s. But he lost the match to a basic submission. So even back then, we did understand, look, jiu-jitsu can beat wrestling because it can, it can finish. Wrestling isn't designed to finish a fight. It is designed to control a fight. Totally different conversation, but I'm going all the way back then, even to when wrestling was at its height, when somebody like Royce Alger could get into the UFC just by having such an impressive and beautiful wrestling resume, and many guys like him. I'm using Royce by example because I just watched this match. Fast forward, you watch some of the stuff that Frank Shamrock was able to do. He had limited wrestling with a good understanding of submission. He could take on great wrestlers, but that limited understanding of submission could get him a win. So we've always known this was the case, but are we now to a point where if you look at all of the martial arts, and don't forget, guys like Izzy helped to change this conversation. A guy who has wrestling defense and will touch you up on the feet helps to change the conversation. I mean, that was a bit of a myth 20 years ago. You had your Maurice Smiths come along, you had your Marco Huazes and your Don Fry, but then you start looking a little bit closer, and they all had some level of grappling behind them. Who was moreover than Maurice Smith, uh, Don Fry moreover than Marco Who was, and that's why they were able to implement and keep guys on their feet. But you do look at the transition of the way things are changing. The fact that the sport was in its infancy in the 90s with some of yesteryear's heroes. Many people are arguing the sport is within its infancy now. I do not agree with that. I full, hard stop do not agree. But that doesn't mean those people are wrong, and it doesn't mean I'm right. We're not going to know. It's going to be a hindsight issue. We're going to have to look back in 15 years and see are the guys today doing something that is much more evolved than the guys are doing today. I don't know. I'm just predicting. No. I have not seen the sport grow as rapidly from 2005 to 2020 as I did from 1993 to 2005. I don't want the answer to this to be yes. I want it to be no. I still want wrestling to be king. But I am confronted with some of the nuances and the strategies that take down defenses, which then negates all of your offense, leaves you on a feet in a totally another realm, in conjunction with the submission and positional abilities of others who aren't wrestlers. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm not ready to fully answer it, but I am ready to concede there's a discussion here. The effectiveness of wrestling is not what wrestling used to be. That's true, and that's okay. That's not a knock on wrestling. That's a compliment to the sport of MMA. Is wrestling the most ineffective martial art in MMA today? That is not a question that I ever thought I would have to ponder. But I'm left stuck to produce an answer. All right, let me chat with you guys for a minute. Let me tell you about BlueChew.com and why you're going to love it. BlueChew.com offers men a performance enhancement for the bedroom. Look, you guys will take a pre-workout before you go to the gym, right? So why wouldn't you take an enhancement before hopping in the sack? 
want to be better, need to be better, or hey, maybe you just want to kick it up a notch. At BlueChew.com, you can get the first chewables with the same active ingredients found in Viagra and Cialis. BlueChew.com, affiliated physicians work with you to find the dosage and active ingredient that is best for you. The chewables from Blue Chew can be taken on a full or empty stomach. Online physician consultant is free. So it is cheaper than two of the other options, Viagra and Cialis. It only takes a few minutes to connect you with a BlueChew.com affiliated physician. And if you are qualified to get you prescribed online quickly, no in-person doctor visit, no awkward conversations or waiting in line at a pharmacy. Ships directly to your door in discreet packaging. The chewables from BlueChew.com are made in the USA and your partner will love it. Chew it and do it. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use the promo code CHAIL. Just pay 5 bucks for shipping. That's BlueChew.com. B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Use the promo code CHAIL. Oh, this Jose Aldo. Oh, my goodness. What an incredible story. I mean, what an incredible career. I remember where I was. I was with a company called WEC. I was at a media event. A gentleman who worked with the organization and the PR arm of it came up to me with a camera and asked me my thoughts on Jose Aldo as it pertained to Aldo versus Uriah Faber. I had never heard of Jose Aldo. And I knew exactly who a California kid was. I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, well, no, I'm going around getting, getting a bunch of fighters' opinions on this. I said, is anyone taking Aldo? I said, how do you say this guy's name? He said, Jose Aldo. He said, almost everybody's taking Aldo. You haven't seen this guy? Knocked out his last two opponents, one with a flying knee, halfway across the cage. He starts telling me about this Jose Aldo. I'm good at this. I'm not that condescending prick unless I'm fully pretending. If I ever do the, hey, what's your name? I'm being a jerk like anyone else that does the, hey, what's your name? And we all know each other's names. I didn't know who Jose Aldo was. I just didn't know. And uh, WEC, World Extreme Cage Fighting, WEC, was very known for the lighter guys. When I was over there, by example, Uriah Faber was the face. And this was a risky move. This was done by a man named Reed Harris who made the decision. I cannot compete with the UFC for light heavyweights and heavyweights and even middleweights. But the UFC is yet, and you need to know this, this is very relevant to the timeline, the UFC was yet to delve into the lighter weight classes. Now the UFC didn't do it because the UFC believed That was not a promising business model, at least at that time. So now, not only does Reed Harris do what the 800-pound gorilla in the room has surveyed, assessed, and passed on, he is now fully going to steer into it, but this is where you then get the induction of the dominant cruises of the world, the Uriah Favors of the world, and the Jose Aldos of the world. So at this time, when I'm confronted with what do I think about Jose Aldo versus Uriah Faber... I'm left to the most basic thought that you guys have when you hear of a fight, and if you've heard of one guy and you haven't heard of the other guy, then this isn't going to be a great fight. This guy starts smarting me up, though. We're standing base, and man, I can't believe you're saying that. This guy's, 
incredible. This guy hasn't lost in seven years. This guy's won 15 or whatever it was. It was, the, it was the most ridiculous numbers. I almost thought this guy was lying to me. Hadn't lost in eight years. <sighs> Shut up. 15, five, I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. Light, a lighter guy knocking people out, jumping across the ring and hitting them in the face with, with knees. I mean, it was just one of these things, but this is who Jose Aldo turned out to be. I went and did do my research. I happened to be there live. I watched he and uh, Uriah fight. Great long contest. I'm one of the last people to say, uh, you know, so long to Uriah at the end of the night because he was sh- taken out on a stretcher in front of me. He was smiling, he was texting on his phone, but his legs were hurt so bad they had him on a stretcher to put him in an ambulance to take him to the hospital to help with some of the swelling. I only bring that to you because that was really the night when the world started to see who Jose Aldo was. And as much as I'm talking about he was eight years undefeated, that was then. He he went a total of 11 years. I don't even know how many knockouts, how many submissions, how many main events, how many title fights. I don't know. The numbers got to be so crazy, I couldn't keep track. And all of a sudden, he was in there with Conor McGregor. And that what was that, an 11-second fight, 13-second fight, Conor threw one punch, slipped his shot through one punch, put Aldo down, leaves with the world championship, and all of a sudden, boom, goes on to the next chapter that went on to be Conor Mania. But now what do you do with Jose? I mean, Jose Aldo put it all on the line for Conor to take. Did not have to do it, but in line with his career, he took on whoever was next and whoever was offered to him. Okay, turned out the biggest star in the sport is who was next and who was offered to him, and Jose gave it all to him. So one thing in combat, it's like poker, but every hand you are all in. Whatever you show up with that night is on the line, and the other guy will take it all. Whatever belt you have, it doesn't matter if you're undefeated and he's lost eight times and never should have even been given the booking. If he gets the booking and he beats you, he takes it all. So when Connor took it all, it was one of these things where as a fan, you couldn't help feel for all, you couldn't help but to feel for Jose and hope that Jose got a rematch. Right? You guys remember that time where you're like, look, however this is going to go, that's between those two. But Jose just gave Connor a tremendous opportunity. I sure hope Jose gets that back. And Connor wasn't really against giving it to him. Connor was just kind of done with the weight class. Remember how hard Connor used to have to cut to make 145? So Connor goes on, goes to 55, goes to boxing, moves up to 70. Connor goes on a different path, and it didn't involve Jose ever trying to or getting to redeem that 11 second contest. Tough spot. Jose deals with it anyway. Deals with it anyway, comes back, looks great doing it. At some point in his career, roughly two years ago off the top of my head, he decides I'm going to go down to 135. Now that was incredible for someone like me to watch. I'm watching a guy in Jose Aldo who has already done and already has more records than an athlete has the right. But he's not done yet for himself. And he saw 135 as the clearest path that he had laid out for himself to getting back into title contention. And he did just that, by the way. I mean, he was in there fighting Peter Yawn as recently as this year of 2020 for the World Championship. So he got very close. But he came in second. What do you do now? What do you do now? When you've already climbed the mountain, you've already got a ton of records that can never be taken away. You're the first ever champion in the UFC. The first are the most important records because those are the ones that can never be outdone. 
getting the most knockouts and the most wins and the most this, uh, they're all awesome records. But if you can never be the first and then fill in the blank, you can never lose it. Right? Anderson Silva had this, he had won 12 fights in a row. And it was just this remarkable feat. But that can be beaten. I mean, that if somebody comes along and wins 13, Anderson no longer has the record. That's where I say to you, it's so remarkable that Jose gets to say things such as, I was the first ever 145-pound champion. That's just one of those titles that can't be taken away. But I, you have to understand how accomplished he is. You have to understand how decorated Jose Aldo is to then be able to appreciate that he stays hungry. He is still very clearly hungry. Him going down to 135 is a lifestyle change. That's not a couple extra hours on the treadmill. That's not an extra more. He wakes up a little early and gets into the sauna. That's not what that is. He had to change his lifestyle just to get to the weight class, but that was evidence of the fact of how hungry he was to fulfill his goal. So he gets there with Jan. I'm going back to Jan. He loses. Okay. Well, what's he going to do now that he's in there with Cheeto Vera? A young, hungry up-and-comer who just took out Sugar Shot. I mean, there's something in this sport, in all sport, to be said for momentum. Cheeto Vera had momentum. He had a tremendous victory, not to mention a tremendous upset, while Jose is trying to pick himself up the campus after getting stomped out by Yawn. It was pretty clear how this story was going to go. It was going to go to Vera, and all day, Jose Aldo was going to be in the conversation with Junior Dos Santos and 58 other guys who were rumored to be going to get cut before year is in. I mean, right? very hard, very tough, but that's what this business is. It's very, very tough. So Jose's going to get this opportunity. He's going to give the shine to Cheeto Vera, and off you go. Wrong. Aldo had other plans. Not only did he have other plans, this was not a matter of he came out and got one of those uh, flying knees or he landed a big left hand and everybody gets to go home. This was a long, drawn-out battle going into the third round, one apiece. How bad do you want it? How good are you? How much have you prepared? How much do you have left in the tank? But right now, in this moment, it's not about the punches and the kicks or the takedowns and the guillotines. It is purely about one thing. How bad do you want it? And apparently Aldo wanted it pretty damn bad. I think it's a remarkable story. And it has so much adversity that you have to, it's not you have to believe it to see it. You, 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 it's not you have to see it to believe it. You have to believe it to see it. Because Jose's not going to complain. He's going to pick himself back up. He's going to move forward. You have to look for it. You have to look and see all the things and the obstacles and, and how many times a window opened to say, I'm out. I'm out. That's ultimately what competition is in its finest of moments, is opening an opportunity and letting the other guy quit. And everybody will quit. What do you have to do? What's the breaking point? How much can they take before they quit? But they will all quit. And to watch these windows open up where Jose could ride off into the sunset at any time and rest on his laurels and go down as one of the greats ever, and he never takes, he, he never pushes that emergency button. It's a very remarkable thing that I feel he really does deserve a ton of credit for. And now, now he calls out TJ Dillashaw. Oh boy, we got a whole nother story. I don't know that anybody has been called out more than TJ Dillashaw. The two most called athlete, out combat athletes in the world, at least in mis- uh, recent memory. If we just want to go back the last month, December of 2020... 
Jake Paul and TJ Dillashaw. And I don't know why. Everybody likes TJ Dillashaw. I don't know why all these guys want to fight him. I believe that they're starting to see that when TJ comes back, he's going to take over a very high ranking within that division. They're trying to get ahead of things. Fine, smart, got no problem with it. I'm just bringing to you the phenomenon, and I am right, and I am accurate. Nobody has been called out more than Paul and Dillashaw. And Dillashaw is sitting in a pretty sweet spot right now. He appears to really have a pick of things to do that are going to be no lower than a co-main event. I mean, if TJ comes back into a main event, there's nowhere to go except for a title fight. If he comes back into a co-main event, okay, fine, you can have a conversation. Well, maybe he needs to do it again, but now in a main event spot. Do it for five rounds. I don't know. Let, let somebody else figure that out. What I'm sharing with you is Jose Aldo versus TJ Dillashaw is a very captivating, meaningful, interesting match. And when's the last time Jose Aldo called out anybody? I don't know if he ever has directly by name. Even when he was trying to get to Peter Yan in a world title fight, he was saying things like, I would like to get to a world title fight. He was never saying Peter Yan. Never. It's just not how he does things. It's, it's, it's like a respect issue within his own mind, and he finds it disrespectful. Either way, I don't think Jose Aldo has ever called anybody out before. Which makes you very inclined to think, well, yeah, of course we're going to try to give that to you. I mean, I was to make a prediction for you right now. I think that all roads for TJ Dillashaw must lead to Uriah Faber. That is my own opinion. That is a story that is date back. It, it has ever been as real and enticing and juicy, not to mention competitive, as Colby Covington versus George Mosvall. It's the same story. It's just with Uriah Faber and TJ Dillashaw. So that is my belief. That doesn't mean that has to be next. I'm just sharing with you that I believe all roads for TJ Dillashaw must lead to Uriah Faber before they lead to a world championship. I really think that, let's figure this out. You got two guys, they want to fight each other. What are we doing here? (laughs) What are we doing? Of course these guys are going to fight. But now Jose Aldo's very interesting. That's a very interesting twist. And I also think that I'm right. I do think that uh, that other people are going to have the appetite that I have to see Dillashaw and Faber with... Which means Faber's going to have to make a decision and be strategic in how and when he plays this card. If he believes that he is going to end up there with TJ Dillashaw, then Faber needs to ask himself a question right now, which is, do I want TJ next? Do I believe that there is an advantage to having TJ removed from the sport for a period of time? Or do I want to see him one more time? Do I want to be able to break down one tape with him and game plan? That is now the strategy that Uriah Faber is going to have. I look forward to seeing what his move is. But as far as Jose Aldo inserting himself in the business of TJ Dillashaw, two former champions, for me, it's a good call out. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you want to know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around the home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Oh, guys, Submission Underground, I had so much fun. It was such a great event, so... Let's just get into the meat of things and fast forward to the main card. 
So Amanda Lowen comes out. If anybody has earned a title opportunity, it's her. But the women's championship has never been contested. So there was no title, by example, for her to come in and claim. There was nobody for her to challenge. Amanda did so much good work over the past four years that she opened an opportunity to where the women in the division just could not be denied, and she was attracting some very big names. I mean, from Sarah Kaufman to Jessica I to Julian Robertson to Felicia Spencer last night for the championship, it's one of these things where she brought in so much attention and had so many people coming after her. There was just no way to not say, okay, this has to be for a championship. We have to start somewhere. We've identified you, Amanda, or you identify yourself, Who's going to be opposite you? It's just one of these things where it was a mess, but it also created for a wonderful evening that's going to be uh, remembered throughout time. It's the first ever. Comes in with Felicia Spencer, and I was very intrigued by this match for a physicality reason. Amanda is a very strong human. So is Felicia Spencer. I don't know that I've ever given a breakdown prior to a match based on strength. Who can do more pull-ups than the other one? Right? Ever. It'd be a little weird if I did, but it was a real thing because Amanda is so strong. You've got to deal with that. Before you want to start talking about uh, the unified or the EBI rules, before you want to start talking about arm bars and back control, you're going to have to deal with a physicality that Amanda's showing up with, and Felicia can. Felicia's ever bit as strong. So it's just one of these interesting matches. Amanda ends up finding an arm bar against the cage. The cage will either help you and be a tag team partner or it will impede you. And it is all based around position and how much time you spent understanding. Amanda was able to use the cage and her advantage and was able to find an arm bar that if they weren't open, Matt, possibly she wouldn't find. I bring that to you because it was the story of the fight into a congratulations to the new and first ever champion in Amanda. We then go into Craig Jones versus Brent Primus. Now, this, for me, was the main event. I mean, this was the main one that I personally, Chael, wanted to see. There is not an athlete out there who is a bigger star in grappling than Craig Jones. I can tell you, even amongst the athletes on the card, when everybody shows up to the venue, you're kind of doing your own thing, or you're eyeing a guy, or maybe you throw him a hello. When Craig walks in, people want autographs. They want to come up and say hi to him. They want to come up and pick his brain on certain techniques. The fellow athletes treat Craig different. The guy's just a star, period. He is also the most scouted guy in the sport. He is the guy that that is watched the most. Whether you're breaking down his tapes or his matches and you're trying to figure out some of the strategies and tactics that he's doing, everybody who has a plan within submission grappling is watching Craig Jones, which makes it tough to be Craig Jones. How do you stay the man when everybody's coming for you and he doesn't get that same luxury? He does not get to go to bed at night thinking about one guy. He has to think about a world who's coming after him They're all thinking about him with coaches who are thinking about him, with teammates who are emulating and trying to act as though they're Craig Jones. It's just one of these deals. And Craig ends uh, ends up in there with Brent Primus. Now, if you don't know anything about Brent Primus, you only need to know this. He stopped Michael Chandler. He stopped Jake Shields. Do, Do I even need to go on? So Brent Primus is one nasty customer, and Brent came in with a very good plan. Brent's plan was protect my lower body. Protect my knee, protect my foot, protect my ankle, and Brent did it. Brent succeeded. 
at what his perceived goal was. What we learned is Craig has adapted. Craig never once got below the knee. He went for it. He fainted. Nothing was close. Nothing was so much as what you would even call a catch. So he went to something else. And that's the thing that Craig Jones needed to prove to us, the viewer, to us, the grappling world. That when he's being scouted and he's being watched, that he has another plan, that he is aware enough of himself and his own success within this space, that he knows that people are watching him. Right when you have all the answers, Craig Jones changes the questions. Right, Old Bobby the Brain Heenan line. One that Errol Hawani loves to bring out, but I like the adage because it's what happened. Right when you had the answers, and Brent Primus had them. Brent Primus nailed the answers. Craig Jones changed the questions. Craig Jones had multiple sweeps in the match, but he did them all by going down first. He would sit himself down, start to look arm drag, start to look sweep, come out on top. I mean, this was a back-and-forth battle where when Craig Jones was was getting his hand raised, he actually bent over at one moment, you know, put his hand on his knees type thing from exhaustion. He was tired. The, the Four-minute match, three-and-a-half-minute match, this was a non-stop. This thing absolutely delivered, but Craig also showed us what Craig needed to show us, which is that Craig, the best, is getting better. He understands that he's being scouted. He's getting better. You then move on to Rumble Johnson versus Ryan Bader. This was a street fight without punches, if I've ever seen one. And they have a history. They competed in MMA at one point at light heavyweight. They are both now heavyweights. I understand that Rumble is rumored to be going down to 205. I'm talking about yesterday when they got in the cage, these guys are both 230 pounds or more. Bader right at that 228, 229. Rumble Johnson right at that 235, 239. These guys are heavyweights. These guys are bigger than Stipe. So they're now contesting a different rule set, but they're also doing it at a different weight class. It's a new match. Ryan Bader wanted to beat Rumble Johnson so damn bad, and it was so obvious. The second that ref said go, Bader comes across and just starts yanking on Rumble's head, and it was almost like a fear factor. You'll always hear fear, oh, this guy's scared, and you'll think that that's a negative. I will tell you to personalize this, my best performances were the ones when I was feeling that the most because you come out there with an urgency. There's a very specific urgency that fear can create. And Ryan Bader, I mean, he came across that ring so fast, he got his hands, and they were heavy hands, heavy hands right on Rumble Johnson, right on his neck, snaps him down front, headlock, pushes him in the fence, tries strangling him comes back to Pullman. It was one of these things where Rumble, it was very clear what Bader's strategy was, which to jump on this guy and never take my foot off the gas. But it was very clear what Rumble was thinking. Rumble was thinking, okay, you're coming out here with a whole bunch of nervous energy. You're going to burn You're gonna burn out. I'm going to be here. I'm going to wait. I'm going to let you use this energy up. You're not going to finish me. And then we'll see who's who. It was one of these things, but Bader never stopped. Bader like showed up with this endless endurance and he just would not stop. And I love to compare combat to a dance because it's a great analogy that you guys would understand in that only one person can lead at a time. So if the other guy is taking charge, you strategically have to find out, do I have the power, uh, skill, and speed to take back control of this or do I just let him have his moment and then he'll give me control back? He's going to need to find his breathers too, and that's now when my offense comes. It was one of these things, so I knew what Rumble was thinking. Rumble's thinking, this guy's coming out too hot, too early. I'm going to wait. 
Rumble would be right in any time except last night. I have the foggiest idea what got got into Bader. But Bader very clearly wanted this victory so damn bad. And I don't know if this is one he's secretly been carrying around with him for all the years since him and Rumble were last in there. I don't know if it's because Rumble now signed with Bellator and Bader, hey, let me show you who the champ is here, kid. I don't know what happened. I only know what my eyes showed me, which was one intense, would not be denied Ryan Bader, so uh, these guys run the clock out. They do this every damn, they do the regulation, they do the coin toss, they go into the overtime and trade all the positions, and it was just Bader. Bader was just relentless, and Bader beat him, which brings you into the co-main event. Now, this is a little bit of the talk of the town, but I'm going to condescend to you all as though you didn't see it, because if you didn't see it, this got real interesting and real weird, and it all happened real fast. So... There is nobody at the event that has more power than me. There, there's nobody that can, can make a decision over my decision. Okay, I, I didn't mean that for arrogance, I, but I mean that to set the stage for you. But guys, you've got to understand this. We're in COVID times. We only have four people on the floor, okay? Red corner, blue corner, a doctor, and the referee. No one else is there. In between matches, a cleaning crew comes in, they leave. Before red corner, blue corner, referee and doctor return. There is never more than four. The cameras that run this event to the world are on remote control and feed on a cord outside to a church. Nobody's together. And I only bring this to you because that includes me. I'm in a different room. I'm in a different room watching this on a monitor. So why I talk about I could have, I could not have. Now, now let me back this thing up. Cowboy, RDA. They go out there. It's a great match. It turns into a wrestling match. More than anything, both guys wanted to be on top, and neither guy could get there. And the one time that RDA did, Cerrone posted on his hips, pushed away, and popped back up to their feet. So these guys are wrestling hard. I mean, RDA's grabbing underhooks and running Donald until the fence catches him. This thing thing gets pretty aggressive right from Jump Street. They go into the overtimes. As they're exhausting overtimes, Donald Cerrone has an armbar on RDA. A very common move to defend an armbar, you must create space. Okay, think of an armbar. The guy's got your arm, he's manipulated by pinching his knees together. If you can create space, which can easily be done by posting your hand on one of the knees and prying it out, that's what RDA does. But he does it with an open hand, and he does it twice. So his arm is being manipulated, and he takes an open hand and twice posts it on Donald's knee. Guys, let me ask you a question. What's a tap? What does a tap look like? It will look like an open hand posting repeatedly on a guy's body part, in this case the knee. So the referee sees you're in a manipulation. By the way, your hand is open and just tapped his knee twice. You submit it. So the referee calls it, Donald wins, they leave, we're getting ready for the main event. Well, we're doing an instant replay. Okay. Now again, I'm sharing this from my perspective. I am in a different location with a monitor and a headset to call the action live, but I'm not there. I'm not on the floor. These guys leave, we're getting ready for the main event. And RDA is not happy about this. He's not being, he's not being a little uh, baby poor sport. He's not storming out. He's not cursing at anybody. But he does say, I didn't tap. 
While he's saying this, while they're leaving, while the main event is loading, we do a replay of which time I see this again. I see what the referee saw. I know that RDA did not mean to tap. I get that. I know what he meant to do. I know that technique of posting a knee, creating uh, some space, trying to sit up, lever your arm through. I understand what he was doing intent-wise. I'm telling you, with an open hand, he posted on the knee twice. That is a tap. That's open to interpretation. It was interpreted, and the referee has to be ultra-sensitive. He has to be, because an arm is at stake. If a guy says, let me go, it's imperative that the referee get in there and say, let him go. That's what happened. Store that away. Main event loads. Submission Underground Champion, Mason Fowler. Nobody's had a 2020 like this guy taking on Olympic champion, Ishii. Now, this is going to be an intriguing match for the very one reason and the very one question that I posed to you guys prior to the match, which is why is judo unrepresented in the sport of professional grappling? Is it because they are not interested? Is it because they are not invited? Or is it because judo doesn't work? A lot of you were very upset with me for asking that question. But guys, that is the question. I'm not answering it. I'm telling you the three possibilities of why we don't see judo represented in EBI, in Submission Underground, or in Abu Dhabi, the biggest grappling events in the world. With more eyeballs, more dollars, we don't see it represented. Why? So we're going to bring in the Olympic champion. And we're throwing him right in the deep end. We're throwing him with the Submission Underground champion. Okay, great. But this is the story of this match. These guys go back and forth. Ishii looks beautiful. Comes into an over-under, hits a foot sweep, puts Mason down, stays on top, slows the action of the match. That was Ishii's plan, right? I know that's not what the viewer loves, but I'm sharing with you what happened. Slow the match down. Let me slow this guy down. Let me get my bearings and my feel. I'm thrown into a main event championship match. I haven't done this before against a guy who is all he does. Let me slow this thing down. Okay. They end up going back and forth with the arm bars. Ultimately, Mason is able to extend, submit, and defeat Ishii. Very big win. If you can beat an Olympic champion, guys, it's very hard to even get a contest with an Olympic champion. Uh, The one that was putting on the line here wasn't Mason. It was Ishii. There's just not a lot of Olympic champions out there. Do you know any? Don't tell me about a guy that you read about. Do you know any? Do you have any friends that have an Olympic gold medal? Do you have a family member? Do you have a guy you went to school with? I mean, being an Olympic champion is a very rare thing. So for Mason to get in there with an Olympic champion, look at all the things that have to happen. Then for Mason to beat an Olympic champion, it's just one of those. It's a great and glorious moment. But while this is happening, I start getting what's called talk back into my earpiece. And they're saying, hey, Chael, when this event is over, which is fade to black, roll the credits, it's the main event. We're all done. Thanks for watching and goodbye. Wrong. I'm getting talk back saying... When this match is over, RDA and Cowboy are returning to the ring. So I'm trying to understand what's being told to me while watching a match and calling it for you guys. I go, what do you mean they're returning to the ring? For what? For what? what would that mean? Oh, they're going to redo the overtime. What do you mean they're going to redo the overtime? Like, let, let, let's say, so Cowboy has won this match. That's official. That happened. You can discuss the contra, discuss what you thought the tap was. That's a totally different... What do you mean we're going to redo it? Like we're going to live with the result? Says who? With what authority? With what authority are we going to flip a coin into overtime and make believe as the first overtime did it already? With how are we doing it? And I don't know the answers. I'm getting talked to while talking to you guys. So sure enough, it ends. Now, the only person who can stop 
RDA and Cowboy, who as far as they're concerned, we're adults. We have made a gentleman's agreement. Cowboy's saying, hey, look, he says he didn't tap. I've known this guy a long time. I trust him. RDA's saying, I didn't tap. He trusts me. We need to redo this thing. I understand that. The integrity of sport is something else. So, again, I come back and ask you, with what authority are they able to redo this scenario? And the only person who can stop them is the referee. The referee, who is a sanctioned, licensed referee, not only every state from Nevada on down, he's also sanctioned within the ABC, the Associated Boxing Commission. I mean, this guy, what he says is going to go. And in the world of grappling, it ultimately is going to come down to his opinion. And I am believing he who does not have an earpiece in, who does not have the information that I have, and who believes the night is over is going to be confronted with RDA and Cowboys starting to step back into his cage. And he may possibly say, what do you know? I don't know. I just don't know what's happening. So I'm trying to tell the audience this, guys, I'm being told these two crazy knuckleheads are going to attempt to redo their overtime. The referee may turn them away at the cage. If he doesn't, if the referee brings them in and he certifies that this will be the new result, then that's the new result. Okay. But you see where there's a lot of moving parts here. So all of a sudden, the camera cuts back to the cage. They're not only in the cage with the referee, the door is shut and locked, and the coin is being flipped. This is happening. Like this, maybe you love this. Maybe you don't like this, and you're a bit of a prude on it like I. This is happening, and it's happening live. So RDA and Cowboy go back out there. Now, the absolute best result is the same result, and that's the one that we got. RDA started with Cowboy's arm. Cowboy escaped. Cowboy then gets an arm. He taps RDA. This time's official. Nobody complains. Cowboy taps RDA twice, beats him once. That is what happened with Submission Underground. It was a very wild evening. There was a lot of moving parts. I think there's a possible storyline here to project into the future as it pertains to Ryan Bader and Anthony Johnson. As much as Ryan Bader wanted to get that one back over Rumble Johnson, and Bader has even the score one apiece, now Rumble's going to have that same motivation. Every single bit of hunger that Bader came in there with now just got passed to Rumble, who is now signed with the organization. Is this foreshadowing? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe Bader stays at heavyweight, Rumble goes to light heavyweight, these guys never cross paths again. But I felt as though the stories as they develop in conjunction with the fact that Mason Fowler, the one constant that you're going to have back is Amanda, Amanda, Lowen, and Mason Fowler. That's what happens when you're champions. More to come. Submission Underground making some big news, making some big moves. I'm sitting on something. I've got an ace in the hole. I'm just not ready to tell you yet. I'm working on it. If you're a grappling fan, I will tell you this. Be happy. 2020 is not over yet. Wonder Boy versus Jeff Neal. Did Wonder Boy have the perfect performance? And before you answer that, think of it in these terms. Is there anything that Wonder Boy could have done better? That's where you run into the problem. Right, if you want to take anything from Wonder Boy, and I can't imagine you would. I'm sharing if you're one of those jerks who would like to take something from Wonder Boy. 
when you juxtapose that with a very simple question of what is it Wonder Boy could have done better, you're left on third base wearing a catcher's mitt. It was perfect. Dealing with the power and the explosiveness of Jeff Neal, dealing with the athleticism, dealing with Neal's ability to mix it up. Neal can wrestle very well. That's something many of you may not know because Neal doesn't always show that, but he can. And Neal was also in a position of now he's going to be in a main event and he's going to go five rounds, something he's never done before. I felt as though both of those guys' stock went up. I thought Neal served himself very well. I really did. Even in defeat, I'm not, I don't believe he won a round officially. But if you look at Wonderboy's ability to control range and distance, the two things that he does better than anyone, the two things that he has made a career off of, and the two things that his attractors are expecting him to go and do, he did it. He did it. Wonderboy will hit you in the leg with his foot. He'll kick you in the chest with his foot. He'll punch you in the mouth, and then he'll, and then he'll move away. Coach Clayton calls this, uh, Coach Clayton always uses it as an example. Don't rob a store and then stand around and wait for the police to come. You rob the store, you get out of there. What he's talking about as that relates to fight, it went, once you hit your opponent, get out. That makes make sense to you guys. You might hear that. But I will share with you from day one in the practice room, 9, 10, 13-year-old amateur, just got his first pair of gloves, all the way to the world championship on ESPN. A fighter will hit the target and be so impressed with himself, he'll stand there to look at his work, want to see what he did, want to look at his, in that brief moment where he pauses to look at his work, to wait around for the police to come after he robbed the store, boom, 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 that's where he gets hit back. Athletes generally just trade that all night long. I'll do it to you, but then you'll do it to me, and you'll make the same mistake back, and now I'll come and do it back to you. That's what trading is. That's what standing in the pocket is. That's what a fool does, but that's what most fighters do. I mean, right, it's just one of these human nature accidents that you can't overcome. It's one of these things. Wonder Boy didn't know a damn thing about it. Wonder Boy has never been in a pocket. He has never stood and traded. I go, you go. Any analogy you want to give, it's just not part of what he does. And he didn't do it with Neil. It was as close to a perfect performance. There was nothing more within studying and understanding Wonder Boy's skill set in his career. There was nothing more that he could have brought to the ring against Neil and done or not have done. It was as close to a perfect performance as you could have. And I thought there was a lot of big hits within the night. I'll just give you an example, but was Pettis. You have, and make sure you understand the trajectory of a career. You break into the business, which means Bellator or UFC sign you. Life is now different. You now get to be a professional athlete, meaning you are going to be given money and you can just do this and just focus on this. Great, congratulations, big step. Now you got to work your way onto TV. They break this down with this, this, this undercard versus main card. You're working your way to get into the main card. Once you get to the main card, you will work your way into a co-main event, mature to a main event, and go into a world title fight. Now, I lay that out for you because the same will happen at the death of a career. You will go from being main events to co-main events to main card. But as soon as you hit the prelims, you're done. You're not coming back. Broad stroke, not literal, but you're not coming back. And next thing you know, you are going to get your walking papers and you are now no longer part of the organization. That is the life and career that you have chosen. It is very competitive and it's very cutthroat. And that's okay. 
We understand that, but it's very important to understand that when you're looking at Anthony Pettis, who once upon a time was on the cover of the Wheaties box, the only combat athlete ever to grace the cover of the Wheaties box. Oh, by the way, they're not even looking at anybody right now. Over at Wheaties, they're not even looking in our direction right now. I mean, this was a major accomplishment and honor. You can only get on the cover of Sports Illustrated for doing certain very wonderful things, and there's only so many covers coming out. I mean, I mean, you just understand my example. While Anthony Pettis went and fought for everything that he had, accomplished what this was given to him. Sure, it was given to him, but it was a tremendous honor. The Nobel Peace Prize is given. There's nothing wrong with putting on your resume something that was given to you particularly when he's the only one. I bring that to you. I bring the story of the Wheaties box because he is now not only not in a title fight. Okay, excuse me. He's not in a main event. Excuse me. He's not a co-main event. He's not on the main card. There is nothing worse that could be going on in Anthony Pettis' trajectory of his career because there is only one step left, which is you lose this match as expected to do to the new up-and-comer. He takes your rub and you're fired. This is the reality. Pettis sees this coming. Pettis makes changes. Now, the X's and O's and the punches and kicks, Anthony Pettis is as good as anybody to have ever done it. To, to, to have to deal with the voice in his head, he's as normal as anybody that's ever done it, which means he has a voice in his head that's not always positive. He makes changes. The first to tell me this was two weeks ago, and I brought it to you guys. Errol Hawani had shared this with me because he talked to Pettis directly. And Errol told me, he said, Chill, I've never seen Pettis like this. I said, but Errol, what, what does that mean? What do you mean you haven't seen him like this? What is it you haven't seen? And, and Errol goes, okay. He goes, maturity. He's showing me a, a maturity, a positivity, a, a settledness that I've never seen before. And then Errol went on to illuminate this by saying, just by example, Pettis started working on a, with a sports psychologist. He started talking about some of the struggles that he has, right, in the back, walking out there. I I understand these things. I think you guys do too. He stopped drinking, by example. I didn't know Pettis was a drinker, but he stopped. He smoked marijuana. He stopped. There were some actual quantifiable things that Pettis brought to Ariel's attention, who brought it to mine, who's sharing it with you guys, but he stopped. Now, does that equal something positive? Are you going to get a good result because you changed any of those things, right? We all do that as human beings. It's called deal-making. The guy that chews tobacco all of a sudden gets lip cancer. He tries to make a deal with the big man upstairs. I will never chew again if you make my lip cancer go away, but it doesn't work that way. We all try to do deal-making, but it doesn't work that way. So is Pettis' new lifestyle, the changes that he made, what Errol Hawani is calling maturity, I think that we would all agree, is it going to affect... A mixed martial arts contest on Saturday night under the unified rules. If so, how? What in the hell's one got to do with the other? I don't know, but this is this is what the story is, and this is what we're coming into. So not only does Pettis pass this test, and this is a hurdle. This is a major hurdle. When when you go down in life, this is when you have to show mental toughness. This is what a fighter is. No term has ever been more corrupted over my lifetime than that of a fighter. It's now about the punches and the kicks. When I was growing up, a fighter was one thing, somebody that got up and moved forward when it was hard. That's what a fighter, man, that guy's a real fighter, would have nothing to do with making a fist and hitting an opponent or vice versa. It's a narrative 
bigger step in life. Do you get up and go face the world when it's easier to stay in bed or don't you? One is a fight and one's not. So when you look at what Pettis was up against, and he knew this, he is a very intelligent guy, particularly as it pertains to the sport and the business. He knows everything I'm saying right now. He knows he doesn't go from main event on down the card to jerk in the curtain and stick around. He knows these things. And he has to deal with them anyway. Not only does he deal with them, he made quantifiable changes. If you want something different, do something different. He did. And he got a great result. And then he had a perfect call out. He really did. He calls out Tony Ferguson. Now, I love this for multiple reasons. Not only do I want to see Pettis fight Tony Ferguson. I've already seen it once. It, it, top of my head, it was about seven minutes. I mean, this thing was a dog fight. And I remember they were, they were being a cut. It was like a TKO. And Pettis ended up getting a cut. Maybe one of Tony's sharp elbows. Something along this ends the night. Whatever. They got fight of the night. This This thing was... Very well received and never discussed about being ran back. And you couldn't do that with Tony Ferguson at the time. Tony Ferguson was at a point in his career, there was no going back. Tony was going one way like a rocket ship and it was forward. And it was colliding with Khabib. So there just was never an opportunity to do that one over. That Tony wasn't doing do-overs. I like the call out because I like the match. Secondly, and moreover, I like the call out because it was a tip of the hat. It was a tip of the hat from one competitor in Anthony Pettis to another competitor in Tony Ferguson. Of, I don't care what happened to you in your last match. I know who you are. I know how good you are. I know how good I am, and I know that you beat me. He was tipping the hat. He was putting over Tony Ferg. Inadvertently. He was trying to get what he wanted. He was trying to get a rematch. I understand those things. It's a selfish business. Inadvertently, he complimented a guy who deserves a compliment. He lifted up a guy who deserves to be lifted up. Anybody that was dancing on Tony Ferguson's great shame on you. Shame on you. And Pettis did the opposite. He had an opportunity. It was his moment. It was his 15 seconds of fame. He brought Tony into it. Not to mention, I want to see the match. I don't have a better idea for Tony Ferguson. Do you? I don't have a better idea for Anthony Pettis, do you? Former champion wants to take on a former champion? Okay. You know, I talked to uh, Cowboy yesterday, face-to-face, and uh, he gave me an update on what he's doing, where he's headed with his career. He said, I'm all in. I am 100% in. One last run for everything. I will take any risk at any level. But I'm going to do everything at 155. 155, this is cowboy talking, creates a dedication that has to exist. A, a byproduct of making 155 pounds requires certain nutrition, certain sleep, and X amount of hours in the day of training, burning calories. I fully understand that. I know some guys, my good, you had to put them, amateur wrestling. I had a teammate named Doug Lee. But Doug Lee had to be a specific weight. He had to. And it wasn't because he wasn't good enough to go with bigger guys. The weight class that he chose of 184 pounds created a byproduct of him getting extra miles in. The way Doug would lose weight was to run. The more Doug ran, the better shape he would get in, and his conditioning was directly related to his performance. He was one of these guys. 
Doug Lee is one of the great wrestlers you've never heard of. Doug Lee beat somebody you might have heard of at an NCAA tournament called Daniel Cormier. Doug Lee beat somebody at an NCAA tournament named Brad Varing. I mean, Doug Lee could wrestle with anybody, but he had to do it at a specific weight, and the weight was relevant. If he could get this weight off, the things that he had to do to make the weight is what made him great. I bring Doug into this because I get what Cowboy's saying. Going 155 is important for two reasons. First of all, us, the fan who is going to dictate and drive a guy's placement on a card, and we are going to help affect and influence his ranking, we have to know the story that we're telling. And if you're bouncing between 55 and 70, even though that story should be told, this is a guy with courage and balls that will do it against anybody. Though that is the story that should be told, what inadvertently happens is we now have no cannon pointed in the same direction. It's very hard to become a contender if you do not identify the weight class for anybody. All the way up to Conor McGregor. A problem that Conor was finding on accident of going 170. Sure, he could sell out arena. Sure, he could get major attention. He could not get a ranking and a title opportunity unless he identified the weight class. I bring you the Conor example because if something's even true for the star's biggest sport, of course, the rest of us have to live with it. So Cowboy identifying 155 is very important in the storytelling that he is on one last run. You cannot go on one last run at two weight classes. You can do something cool. You can be a meaningful guy. You can get a lot of credit for being one of the few guys willing to do it over the spread of parity of two different divisions, but you can't get that title shot. So it was very important that Cowboy identified this. And then secondly, I liked his reason. I really liked what he said. I like that his thought was that 155 requires certain things. Discipline. It requires certain discipline acts that motivation and other things in itself couldn't do. So I just I just understood what he was saying. And so then I start thinking, okay, well, Cowboy's a meaningful guy. Cowboy's not going to be less than a co-main event. He could end up in a five-round atmosphere, find himself a main event. But what do you do with Cowboy? Where should Cowboy go from here? I don't see a scenario right now because of the logjam that has been created at 155. I don't believe anybody, anybody right now, absent illness or injury, right, if one of Connor Poirier, Gaethje, uh, Chandler, and now uh, you got Charles Oliveira, excuse me. You have Charles Oliveira in this mix too. I don't believe anybody... As good as they are, I don't believe anybody can crack into that. I believe that is set. I believe that is where the promotion is going, and they're going to figure it out with those players until they open up the floodgates for somebody new. That's not a problem because two of those guys, Connor and Poirier, are 21 days away. So this isn't some built-in problem. This isn't some closed society that you can't get into forever. You just need, you need in that case, three weeks. And as far as the Gaethje Chandler, which is a rumor largely that I'm starting, but I look at the players left on the board, I think that I'm right there. I think that that's right around the corner, too. I think that's February or March. So all of a sudden, you are going to be able to open the door, and you're going to see something that's new. So hold that thought. What do you do in the meantime? I think when you're talking about Cowboy Cerrone, I think it would be a tragedy, an absolute travesty, to have Paul Felder and Donald Cerrone in the same organization at the same weight class willing to do the same thing at the same time and not put them together. 
I just do. I, I think that it's got to be Felder. I think it's got to be Cerrone. I think for their own good, it needs to be a co-main event. I do not need to see those two knuckleheads bludgeon each other for, for 25 minutes just purely for my play. They can prove their point and deliver us a fight of the year candidate in 15 minutes. I'm adding to it. I don't really get my say of the placement of the card. It's enough, it's enough for me to ask Sean Shelby and Mick Maynard for a match. It's enough of me to do I don't then get to ask the placement on the card. I was trying to add to the thought. But think about that match. Think about these two kickboxers who really get their due in kickboxing, but if you look a little bit closer, know exactly what they're doing on the ground. Paul Felder almost never sees himself there. His wrestling defenses have gotten so good, and Donald Cerrone will submit you from there. His jiu-jitsu's gotten so good. It's one of these things where you don't really know what you're going to get, but at the same time, we can't have these guys. We can't have these guys sign, same weight, agreeing to everything and not put them together. I just don't think we can. I think that's a perfect placeholder. I think it's a perfect what do you do until somebody's going to break into it. We're closing out 2020 with Connor, Poirier, Chandler, Gaethje, and now Charles Oliveira. I keep wanting to call him Figueredo, by the way. I apologize. Oliveira. That narrative is not going to be the narrative we are having at the end of 2021. You are going to have all new players. This narrative was not a narrative we had coming in to 2020. Figueredo was not in the equation. Chandler was not in the organization. Just by example, Khabib was still champion. Now it looks like he's retired, but there's a lot of moving parts. Is Connor coming back, isn't he? Is Connor going up to, to 170 after and, and Kamara Usman? I mean, there were so many questions that we don't have right now. We have several of the answers. I just share for you that 55-pounders had better be on notice, and they better be starting to line themselves up and position themselves. There is going to be opportunity. It is closed door right now. We have a little mini round robin of five, potentially of six, if Khabib, who is still champion, decides to retire. It's just one of these things. But this is not going to be a thing for very long. We're going to get activity and answers from two of those participants in the next 21 days. So I just share with you, Cowboy's in a good spot. I love that he's hungry. I love that he's coming back. I love the discipline. I I love the built-in mechanisms at 155. We're still stuck with the question, who is his next opponent going to be? I will submit for you my choice, Paul Felder. So you guys know Ali, Ali Abdelaziz. Ali and I talk every day, every single day about something bouncing ideas off each other or maybe I'm try- maybe I need something I got to reach out to him he's Mr he's a good problem solver he's a good guy to reach out to but every single day we talk and I I must tell you this in 2020 I don't know if he a name has come out of his mouth more than Islam Makhachev and it's one of these things where I sit back and I see the frustration that Ali who is Islam's manager would have. And here's what it is. Islam has some beautiful record without looking at it off the top of my head. This guy's like 16 and one and, and never lost in the UFC. It was like his second fight ever. I mean, it was something weird like that, but it's just this remarkable record. He also comes in with the blessing of Khabib, which is very, very meaningful. Khabib's opinion matters to have a blessing from Khabib. And we saw Khabib wield his power as recently as eight weeks ago when he said, if you want me, get through Poirier. 
I will not fight you. I do not care what money they offer me. I do not care what your ranking is. I will fight you regardless of the money and regardless of your rank. I will fight you if you beat Poirier. So every 55-pounder in the world is lining up trying to get, okay, what do I got to do to fight Poirier? Sounds like I got my marching papers. I only bring that to you because when Khabib speaks, it comes with a level of power. Influence. That's the word I'm looking for. Khabib leaves the sport, and he ideally would like to leave it in Islam's hands. But Islam does not have the marketability or the ranking of Khabib, and there is a false perception, arguably false, that sure, he's Khabib's choice, but he is not the best next, uh, next best thing, and he is not Khabib. And if he's not any of those things, then why would we want him? Right? This is the struggle, though. Every athlete comes with a story. Every athlete comes with a certain level of struggle. So then as you tie it in to Islam... You take other studs within the division that are very meaningful with very big names, and Islam's going after them. Islam is willing to do his part. I am as good as advertised, and I, but I will prove it. But I need somebody to give me that opportunity. One of those guys that did give him the opportunity was Kevin Lee. Now, that fight didn't happen, but Kevin Lee did accept it. Outside of Kevin Lee, I don't see some of these big names coming to Islam. At the same time, I don't blame them. That's a very hard night, and I do think that Islam has had some meaningful misses in the way of marketing and presenting himself in the media. If you're going to be a really hard night, you're going to be a tough night out for the same paycheck, I need an incentive that I can grab something off of your name. I can get some kind of a bounce. I can't take that from you. I take whatever it is you bring. If you bring a built-in bounce, I will take your bounce. Islam doesn't bring that. How does he fix it? What does Islam do? It's not a matter of just calling out studs. That's a step. That's a piece of this whole thing. But it's not the whole thing. And And I see, when I'm talking with Ali, I see where he's trying to maneuver and he's trying to position and he believes I have the next Khabib. I already, I have him right here. He's in front of the world. He's shown people 16 times up, 16 times he's done it right and he's willing to take on anybody, but where do I get him his rub? Okay, never known the answer. I've never had an opinion on the answer. I feel as though I have it now for the first time. And it's two words, Charles Oliveira. I do not know... Who Charles is repped by? Possibly he's repped by Ali and they just see a washer. I don't know. I'm adding to the story now. I'm just sharing with you. Oliveira has thrown this division into a wrench. But Oliveira is not Francis Ngannou. I bring Francis into this example because when Francis beat Rosenstroke, Dana went to the press conference, and this is looming, looming in the future. Seven weeks in the future is Stipe versus Cormier. Dana goes to the press conference that night and says, Francis will not fight anybody except for a world title next. I don't know if that's going to be Cormier. I don't know if that's going to be Stipe. He's going to fight for a world title next. That is the only time I have ever seen Dana do that when a fight is looming. Because that means you're taking a number one contender and you're putting him on ice. I've seen a number of perceived number one contenders come out and say, I will sit. I will sit for the opportunity. Never once has it gone their way, and never once have they declared this accurately. just doesn't work that way. This is a sport, if you don't stay on top of it, you're going to get passed by. Francis Ngannou was so devastating. He was so overwhelmingly devastating with the field. The only responsible thing you could do with him was reserve him for a title fight. I share that with you to juxtapose against Charles Oliveira. He's shown us how good he is. His resume's beautiful. He's done a great job. 
He is not devastating enough, and he has not done a good enough job that we stick him on ice for a number one contender spot and wait for the rest of the bracket to play out. Is Khabib coming back? What happens with Poirier and Connor? Are we right that Chandler and Gaethje are going to get in there? Oliver is not good enough or big enough or hot enough to wait a potential six months to answer. So Oliver is going to do something. Oliver wouldn't disagree with me. Oliver would, if he was sitting here right now, he would happily tell you, Chael's right, I am not waiting until June of next year. I am a prize fighter. I must fight to get the prize. No problem. But that appears to be the one that you could manipulate. And nobody is lining up to fight Oliveira. Oliveira's in a very good spot. Sounds like I'm pulling him down saying he's not next in line. I'm right about that. I'm not pulling. He's in a great spot. He's just not next. He's close. But he's not there. Oliveira... If you go back purely by the numbers, you take the one name recognition of Tony Ferguson out of it. If you go back just by the numbers, undefeated X amount of days, won this many rounds without being blemished, Islam Makhlchev can match him everywhere and in some beat him. This is Islam's case to come out and make. But I talk to Ali every day. I'm going to talk to him tonight. I'm going to share this opinion with him because he's always looking for something for Islam to do. And nobody wants to do it with Islam. Islam may be a secret to the masses. He's not a secret with the boys in the locker room. They know how good he is. But now Oliveira is the guy that's sitting on this weird island. What's going to happen with Oliveira? And whatever Oliveira does, it's all on the line. Whatever rub he's got right now, it's all on the line. Oliveira does not do a great job communicating English, okay? Neither does Islam. But Oliveira is huge in certain parts. He's big here. He's huge in certain parts. Same with Islam. Islam is huge in Russia, in Dagestan, in those eastern blocks. Huge. They're going to need to make that case to North America where the decision will be made, but I think that they can balance each other out very well. I also don't think that there's anything meaningful for Islam to do. And I mean, sure, we can rinse and repeat and give him three fights a year and strong arm somebody into it, just like everybody, every other fight that you make. Sure we, sure we can, or we can get ahead of this thing. Something tells me Oliveira is the bear that doesn't isn't going to take kindly to being poked. Something tells me that. I think that I'm right. Nobody's poking at him. I think this is Islam's move. I think it is his best move. I think it needs to be tomorrow's move. Guys, 2020, I don't know if there's ever been a time I'd rather be alive. I don't want to read about 2020. I do not want to hear about it. It's a thing of folklore. I want to be able to tell people the story of 2020. I want to tell you guys the story of 2020, and I'm going to start on January 20th. Guys, Conor Mania is real. Conor McGregor comes out of retirement. Not only does he come out, he comes out and he states, I am going to fight four times this year. Okay, first things first, Cowboy Cerrone. The numbers were against Conor McGregor going into this contest. He had been out close to 500 days. He tipped the scale. At 168 pounds, I bring that to you because this fight was at 170. But 168 pounds represented the most Conor had ever weighed in at. If you were to look at combat as a history, particularly with boxing, it would be even more obvious. 
If you have a fighter who ever weighs in the most he's ever weighed, tear your ticket up because you're not going to the betting window. Great. Fight starts. I happen to be there live. Little backstory that nobody knows. I was there live. I was in T-Mobile Arena. The main card had started. When the main card starts, everybody that's left on the card is in the building. Commission rule. There's drug tests to do. There's the changing of the clothes. There's warming up. But there's also commission things such as the wrapping of the hands, which must be watched, which must be regulated. The putting on of the gloves, which must be wrapped, which must be regulated. I bring this to you because you may not know this. They were three fights into the main card. Conor McGregor was not in the building. Conor McGregor drives himself. When he comes to Las Vegas, for example, he rents a home. He doesn't stay at the hotel. So he now has a car, and then he drives himself. Everybody else gets in a bus. They shuttle in. They go home together real easy. Connor drives, so he comes three fights in. If you remember watching this event, there was a lag in the matches. There was all of a sudden more promo. There was more announcers talking. That's what's called fill. You may have never known why they had to fill. They had to fill because the main event wasn't there. It's relevant to the stories if we're talking numbers, but it's because the time that Conor McGregor arrived, he was in the ring within 40 minutes. Within that 40 minutes, he has to change his clothes. He shows up in a suit. He looks fantastic. You guys see that at home. He has to do a drug test per the commission. He has to wrap his hands per the commission, apply the gloves the right way, get those wrapped, signed off on. By the way, I would imagine he'd want to warm up. He somehow did all of these things within 40 minutes of his music hitting those speakers and him making that walk. That's a relevant number because he was in the ring for a total of 40 seconds. He threw a total of 20 strikes, 19 of which landed. By the way, he was pitching a shutout in the world of defense. Conor McGregor did not sustain a significant strike. He threw 20, landed 19. I watched the fight. He threw 20. All 20 of them touched something. Perhaps I'm missing the definition of significant strike. But to do that when weighing in at your heaviest, when sitting for 500 days, let's say I'm right, guys. Let's say I am right in my assessment. And just by the numbers, that was not Connor at his best. You were left with the question, just how good is this guy? He can show up 40 minutes before a match, get decompressed, get warmed up, change his clothing, make a walk when his music hits the speakers, and be done in less than 40 seconds, by the way, pitching a perfect game on defense and a nearly perfect game on offense. I mean, are you hearing what I'm saying right now? Oh, did I mention for you? Tenth, fourth largest gate in UFC history at $10 plus million. Now, I should mention spot number one, spot number two, spot number three, all held by Conor McGregor. The only record he did not break was his own record. I bring it, I think that Conor goes down as a top five fighter of 2020. And I had to lay out my case before making that statement because I think a lot of people are going, Chill, he fought one time. How can you say that? Well, I have a lot of numbers to back up the statement. Okay. We then go into the women's fight. Of course, I'm talking about Joanna. I'm talking about Wei Lee. This was said that night to be the greatest women's fight of all time. I do not offer an objection to that. But it then had an entire balance of a year, another 11 months to compete for simply fight of the year. 
Because that is no longer in the category of men versus women. That's going to be everybody within every weight class that ever competes. In 2020, guys, there was never a better time to be a fight fan. We were treated to some of the greatest matches we have. Oh, and by the way, Wei Lee and Joanna withstood the pressures of time. That is the consensus fight of the year. It was absolutely remarkable, which moves us in to UFC 249. This is going to be the big one. We are going to have Khabib. We are going to have Tony. Dana White booked, promoted, and planned for this fight five times. This is the fifth. They say the third time's a charm. Dana's going for the fifth. UFC 246, I believe I said 249, UFC 246, but you have to understand. Khabib ends up out of the fight. Pandemic hits. Rumors are Khabib cannot get an airplane and get out of the country of Russia. Okay, Tony stays intact. Tony is now going to take on Justin Gaethje. Stay with me here. Because everything changed for Tony. Not only did the opponent change, we're now talking about a stylistic change to the highest degree. Grappling heavy Khabib Nurmagomedov being replaced by striking heavy Justin Gaethje, sold out Barclays Center in New York, replaced for an empty, crowdless apex in Las Vegas. Now, at this point, fighting in front of no crowd, having very low audience or a low energy, for some athletes was low pressure. That's okay. We're used to it now as fans. I'm taking you back to May 9th. I'm taking you back to 246. I'm taking you back to the first time this ever happened. The first time any sporting event had returned. The first time we had ever seen a combat sporting event. Empty. No crowd. No energy. Total change from what Tony Ferguson was planning on doing. Now, generally, you would look... As the athlete who knew about the date, the weigh-in, and the contest the longest to be the one that has the advantage because he has the training camp. Guys, that is what logic will tell you, but history tells you something different. The guy who comes in with a clear head. The guy who did not know about it and finds out at the last minute and never did what's called paralysis by analysis, where you sit and analyze something, you sit and prepare for something so much that you freeze. History will tell you the guy with the clear head book last has the advantage, and that's exactly what happened here. I don't know that anybody was more surprised with Justin Gaethje's victory, dominant. Fight was stopped at the very end of the fifth round, about 23 minutes in. But every minute in every round was officially won by Justin Gaethje, and I don't know that anybody was more surprised than Justin Gaethje. Justin Gaethje looked to me a bit like a snowball. It looked like he gained a little momentum with his first sequence. He started to see, man, I can get to Tony. My kicks are working, but my jab is starting everything. Plus, I'm finding his body every now and then, and my defenses are pretty good. It looked as though, and I say, I'm personalizing this, but I, I've been a competitor, and I, I can see some of those things. I've had that. Oh, my gosh. Doing a little better than I thought I was. I believe that Justin Gaethje surprised himself. And once that train, once that snowball gets rolling, it's just hard to stop. And though Gaethje perhaps was not trained adequately 
to his own liking for five rounds, when he got that momentum going, he was able to push the finish. And even though it was stopped just before the completion, Justin Gaethje left the champion, uh, champion of the world. Interim championship, which means he draws into Khabib. All the while, you have to understand the timeline. Hey, you're not going to want to miss this. All the while, we hear a rumor. Something called Fight Island. Dana White comes out and tells us, I have secured a night. He mentioned it in the media one day. He was just going about his media and about his work, and he was sharing with them, I have secured an island, and I'm going to take the fights over there, and here's how we're going to do it. We've got a bubble. We're locked down. He got teased. This made this all the way to a television show with a very funny comedian called uh, Stephen, Stephen uh, Colbert. Colbert. You guys know who Stephen is? You know the guy with the glasses. Very funny, but he was teasing Dana. And quite frankly, even a lot of us in the business are going, you have an island? What do you mean you have an island? But we don't see it. He doesn't tell us where it is. And these rumors begin to circulate. And this was like the unintentional marketing, possibly of my lifetime. People began to sell t-shirts. Dana White began to tag social media, hashtag Fight Island is real. And this thing caught on. Turned out he had an island. So he's got his partners in Abu Dhabi. They got everything set up, and that's exactly where they go. So as I'm talking about Agechi and Khabib, this is where they're going to go. But before they get there, Usman's up. But who is Usman going to fight? Because eight days prior to the contest, he lost his dance partner. Who fills in? The BMF. The biggest star in the sport, George Masvidal. Feel free to have a conversation. Is it Connor? Is it Masvidal? I'll listen. But they both did a pay-per-view this year, and Masvidal went down as number one. I share that with you because on eight days' notice, he put it all on the line. Look, guys, in this sport, whatever you bring with you to the ring, it's on the line. I came from an amateur background. NCAA was a big goal. That's one time a year. If you win the NCAA... Your next match, the championship's not on the line. You are the NCAA champion. And a whole year has to go by. You return to this tournament, and then and only then can that championship be claimed. Use the Olympic Games, by example. If you are the Olympic champion, your next contest, the gold medal's not on the line. Now, I bring that to you because in this sport of combat, it's all on the line. There's no such thing as a non-championship match. There's no such thing as, well, I put this up, but I don't put... No, it's all on the... You're all in. All, your chips are all in at all times. So Masvidal comes out the biggest star in the sport. Usman comes out the champion of the world. Masvidal comes out with 12 pounds of gold that says BMF. Usman comes out with 12 pounds of gold that says UFC. I mean, this is a big match. And I feel as though it went under the radar because the story... As told at that time, and still told and mistold to right now, is that Usman did what he was supposed to do while Masvidal took all the credit for saving the day. Masvidal got on a plane and flew to another continent and made weight and did it all on eight days notice and fought 25 minutes with the champion of the world. And he took all the credit. I love that Masvidal bought credit, but guys, Usman did the same thing. Masvidal did not know he was going to fight Usman eight days prior to the contest. Usman did not know he was going to fight Masvidal eight days prior to the contest. Usman 
won all five rounds according to two judges. He won four of the five rounds according to another judge. Masvidal left with all the credit. Only in 2020. Now, I bring that to you because there was enough credit to share. Masvidal did go out and put up a performance even though he was losing rounds. He was supposed to get taken down and held there. He didn't get taken down. When he did get taken down, he got right back up. He was throwing punches and kicks on his feet. Masvidal was supposed to fatigue. Masvidal didn't fatigue. Masvidal did great. Usman beat him. Where's Usman's credit? Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as we start to progress through the year because we're taking a good look at that division of 170 pounds, which is where you start to see an immersion of a man named Gilbert Burns. Who is going to challenge Usman? Masvidal, who just did it, says, I want to do it again. Except I'd like a full training camp. Well, that's a pretty reasonable argument to me. Gilbert Burns takes out two former world champions, including Tyron Woodley. Says he would like to fight for the championship. Eh, That's a pretty good argument for me. Colby Covington hasn't gone anywhere. Oh, and by the way, insert a new guy named Hazmat Chemayo. So as you're looking at 170 pounds, you've got a lot of moving parts and you've got a lot of attractiveness where I imagine there's quite an appetite to see certain competitors matched up. But Dana's got a pick and it it looks as though it's going to be Usman versus Burns. But hold the thought. Let's go back to Chemayev. This was not the year in 2020 of the champion, guys. This was the year of the contender. It was more often than not where we saw some of our greats. Wei Lee comes to mind. Amanda comes to mind. Exiting of Henry Cejudo comes to mind. Stipe Miocic versus Daniel Cormier comes to mind. This was not the year of the champion. This was the year of the challenger. And we had two very big ones, Hazmet Chemayev and Kevin Holland, but I want to tie them together to make sure you don't miss this. The first time they set the octagon up in a year called 1993, they were able to make a star, which just means a name that you guys know and are willing to stop what you're doing to watch them compete. That's all that word means, but it's a coveted word, and it's hard to obtain that status. But in 1993, they could do it in a day because they had a tournament. They would bring in eight guys. Whoever won that tournament was not only going to walk out, not only going to be introduced, not only compete, but he was going to win three times. That seemed to be the magic number to get over in the audience's mind and to stand out and be remembered. But if you juxtapose that night of 1993, which held until 1997, against what began to happen as early as 1999 and universally by 2001, which was commission stepped in and athletes in a broad stroke were competing three times a year. Now to get the same kind of rub, to shine up your wheels as much as they used to be able to do in one evening, it's going to take you a year. Oh, and by the way, you had better not stub your toe anywhere along there or your clock has to reset. With Chemayev, who competed three times was scheduled for two different weight classes, and Kevin Holland, scheduled five, competed five. What was able to happen with them, they were just able to resonate. Not to mention they had a steady incline in opponent, not to mention they had a steady incline 
on placement on card, which came with a built-in mechanism of media and opportunities. So when I talk about it being the year of the challenger, it was the Gilbert Burns's of the world. It was the Hosmet Shemayevs of the world. It was the Kevin Hollands of the world. And of course, I've saved the best for last. The Davidson Figueredos of the world. Four times up. Knocks them all out of the park. Figueredo gets beat one time in 2020 and it was by a scale. He didn't lose to a man. There was no judge that saw it another way, no referee, no viewer. Lost one time to a scale, got a redo. Took on Joseph Benavides twice, found a way to get his hand raised twice. Stays very active and busy and all of a sudden really catapulted an entire division. To do well for yourself, this is a selfish sport. I would never begrudge somebody. I wouldn't even comment on it. But when you can do well for an entire division, you can take every 125-pounder on the roster and catapult them into a spotlight, both for the championship matches and for the contenders. You've done something very noble. In one of the most selfish sports in the world, it's one-on-one. We understand that. It's one. There are no teams. We get it. It's okay. But there is a selfishness that's built into that. There's a selfishness that attracts a lot of athletes. When you can do what Davidson Figueredo did, which is to headline card after card, and now all of a sudden you're doing it in pay-per-view main event spots on ESPN, the worldwide leader. When you're doing those things, you are now helping the boys in the back. You did not get up in the loft and pull the ladder up behind you. You got up in the loft and you dropped the ladder down so other people can come up. It was a very cool thing. It was a part of the year that I don't want any of you to miss. Now, I must tell you, as I'm highlighting a number of things, okay, we also saw something very unique within our perennial featured class, which is, of course, the heavyweights. Rewind to the monster. Francis Ngano needed less than a round to dispose of fellow striker Rosenstrike. I bring that to your attention because something unique happened, which is Dana White went to a press conference. Okay, Understand the timeline. Right here is where Ngano ends. But the heavyweight championship is going to be contested seven weeks later between Stipe and D.C. Never in the history of the organization has Dana White put a guy on hold. He literally walked to a press conference. He said, Francis is done. Until the heavyweight championship is figured out, Francis will then take on the winner. It was the reason that Dana did it that was so unique. The reason that he did it was out of responsibility. Francis and Ghana, you could talk about who the best is. You could argue who the biggest star is. You cannot give the moniker of scariest fighter to anybody else than Francis. And that's what happened. Dana's taking a look at him and saying, look, I've given you the number five guy. I've given you former champions. I'm giving you top guys. You are sending them out of here on a stretcher. Out of a responsibility, I am putting you on hold and you will only take on the unified baddest man on earth. Is it you or is it him? But that's what you're going to do next. Very unique spot because then you come to the heavyweight championship. This is where you see Stipe and this is where you see DC. Now, with all the great fights we had, and as limited as Stipe Miocic was, he only had one fight. Had five rounds, one opponent. I also have Stipe on my top five fighters of the year for 2020 because of the significance, guys. Stipe, first off, is a first responder in a pandemic. Secondly, Stipe Miocic was dealing with an injury to his eye. 
I can't think of many things, if anything, more sensitive that you pay attention to than an eye. Pretty important, right? He dealt with these things, he overcame, and he went in there with his ultimate nemesis. A true trilogy fight. Not a third time guys are fighting. A true trilogy means you split the first two. So Stipe is in there with his nemesis in the middle of a pandemic, the exact opposite thing that happened in the two previous contests where he's in in front of sold-out records arena. First time in Las Vegas, the capital of the world. Second time in Los Angeles. Absolutely packed. Now there's no energy. He's got to find a way to win. He's got one shot at this thing because Daniel Cormier has said, when this fight is done, I am done. Which means if this does not go Stipe's way, there is no chance for redemption. He can go chase the belt and pick up with the next crew, but there will always be an asterisk. A lot of pressure on the champion, particularly coming off of an injury. He looked great. He found that body of Daniel Cormier. He found a way to stop those takedowns. He found a way to push the pace while being the smaller man. One thing that really surprised us in fights two and three between Stipe and Daniel Cormier was the scale, where Stipe weighed in at 130 pounds, followed by 131 pounds, down from uh, 241 pounds. I bring that to you because numbers matter. There's a reason we weigh these guys in. There's a reason we size these guys up. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. That's why we do the photos at the weigh-ins. And things were a a little peculiar with Stipe. Why is this guy with no fat on the bone trimmed down? Why? What was his objective? What did he try to gain? Why did he change his diet? Okay. Stipe passes the test, shows us all he's the baddest man in the world, and now we're just looking for Stipe versus Francis, but because of the significance of this fight, I have to put Stipe on my personal list as top fighters of the year now. There was another side to 2020. Some of the more memorable moments didn't have anything to do with the punches and the kicks. It wasn't Peter Yawn finding a championship. It wasn't Volkanovski defending a title. It wasn't the bullet coming out to shock us with her jaw-dropping dynamic abilities. It was the retirement of Anderson Silva. It was the way that Anderson Silva went out. Anderson Silva, a champion and a legend, who has more records than I could keep track of and list for you right now, and I'm very good at these things, went out feeling down about himself and feeling that he owed us and himself more. And I could not help but to take that in and want to grab Anderson and say, you're wrong. You do not owe yourself anything more. You are a 44-year-old former champion of the world that held that thing and ran with that thing further than anybody. And as a fan and a viewer, you certainly don't owe us. You gave us some really great moments. But it was one of these things, if you guys will remember, the way a UFC will end. You guys watch them. They fade to the octagon. The announcers talk. The credits roll and you're off the air. They go to fade to the octagon, and Anderson's in there doing a meditation. He's doing a type of a ceremony. He's on his knees. He's saying goodbye to the octagon. He wasn't fully saying goodbye to the sport. He was saying goodbye to his time in the octagon. When that got done, he goes behind the stage. Okay, All the things I remember of 2020, okay? I'm telling you, like it just happened. He goes behind stage, and he's going to be interviewed by a former nemesis and opponent, Michael Bisping. 
So these two are going to have a very real moment live, and we're all going to capture it. What's going to happen here? Well, the way these interviews work, athlete gets about 30 to 45 seconds. Boom, he's out the door. You move on. Anderson pulls up a chair, and he sits down, and he starts talking, and he starts sharing how he's feeling in this moment. It was one of these very real, and it was one of these very raw moments. It was one of the most captivated and powerful moments in all of MA in 2020. I would go that far with it. I would use a lighter-hearted story to tell you one of the bigger surprises of all of 2020, which was the retirement of Henry Cejudo. And I don't know what is more surprising, that Henry Cejudo retired or that he stayed retired. So to set this stage with you, Henry comes out. He's got Dominic Cruz. Everything's going his way. He gets a stoppage. They raise his hand. He takes a microphone. He informs the world, and I quote, Triple C is out. Drop the mic moment, and he leaves. But 45 minutes later, he was at a press conference. And Henry Cejudo said, Dana White knows my number if he wants me back. Now, we've seen a public negotiation. Quite frankly, they never go that great, and they're always annoying for everybody involved, and it appeared that this was this was. And Dana quite simply said, I take my guys at their word. His word to me is that he's done. I'm not going to be back in the office for eight days, but when I return in eight days, I'm going to make a championship fight at that weight class. If he calls me, I will take him at his word. I will find him an opponent. If he does not call me, I will find two other guys. I bring this to you because Henry had made it clear at the press conference that there was something he would come back for, and it was financially incentivized. He did not come back, and so you understand how this works. I want to give you guys a little inside baseball here. I want to give you a reward here for coming to the home of Chael's son and UFC Fight Pass, to Chael's channel, to Chael's show, to Chael's recap. I want to tell you some inside stuff you can only get from Chael. The way a champion's contract works. There is something known as a championship clause. That clause is activated when you defend a championship on pay-per-view. Henry relinquishing the belt while saying what I need is more money. Devoids himself of championship clause, which means when and if he's to come back, he comes back as a contender. Which means the one thing that he told us that he wanted, which was a little cake, Jake, is gone. So I bring that to you because this story started, it got hard to get. You're sitting back on me. Is he serious? Is Henry gone? Got nothing wrong with seeing a guy go out on top, but most guys go out the same way, which is face down and embarrassed. I mean, it's one of those sports. It's a very seductive sport. It's a very rare rush and high that you can't get anywhere else in life. To walk into an arena, to hear that door shut, mano a mano, me and you, My skills, my toughness, your skills, your toughness. Only one of us wins. There's no draws. To understand that from that perspective and walk away from it is just something not a lot of guys do. I can turn to Lennox Lewis. I can turn to George St. Pierre. Do you guys have a third? I guess we have to say Henry Cejudo. Because it appears that he has left, and it was one of the more surprising moments for me in 2020. And not just the fact that he walked out, but the fact that he didn't return. Now, when you want to talk about a time to be a fight fan, 
It wasn't only 2020. Guys, it's right now. It's the end of the year. Let me set the stage for you. We have not announced, because Dana has yet to give to us a single title fight. Now hold that thought, because he has given us some pairings. He has told us Blahovich is going to fight Adesanya. We haven't been told a date. That's what I'm talking about. We've been told that Burns is going to fight Usman. We're hearing rumors that Colby is going to fight Masvidal. And yes, I am including that as a championship because Masvidal has won. I'm calling that a championship. We've been told Stipe is going to fight Ngannou. We've been told Amanda is going to fight with Megan. We have been told Aljo is going to get his opportunity at Peter Yawn. But we don't have a date yet set. We do not have any dates. And the only thing that should tell you is January, February, and March are going to be loaded, they're going to be fun, and we are going to have storylines galore. 155, Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier. Is Khabib retired? Is he retired? It's a fair question. Because if he's not, potentially this will draw into Khabib. If he is, potentially this gets named as the first championship match. Oh, and by the way, what's going on with Chandler and Gaethje? They appear to be the only pieces on the board that don't have a dance partner. And not to mention, it's a division that just has been rattled by a guy named Charles Oliveira, who one year ago we were not discussing. I believe there are many names today that we were not discussing a year ago. And I promise you, when we are back, and it's going to feel fast, guys, when we are back here doing this next year, it's going to be a new crop of athletes. It goes quickly. You have a window. It is competitive. It is awesome. It is as real as it gets. It's only here. And, guys, I want to wish you a very happy 2020. Thank you for joining me. And I'm sure that you agree with me when I say there has never been a better time to be a fight fan. Well, this just in. So Michael Chandler and Dan Hooker have verbally agreed for UFC 257. Okay, fine. Didn't see that coming. I've been predicting for you guys that it was going to be Gaethje. Now, I based that on nothing. Absolutely nothing. I even talked to Michael Chandler, and he gave me nothing and told me that. Chael, I'm going to give you nothing. I'm going to give you absolutely no scoop. But I kind of looked at the pieces on the board and go, well, here's who's left. Now, of course, I will acknowledge most certainly Dan Hooker is left. That's an awesome fight. Didn't see it coming. Love it. Love it. But hold that thought. Hold the thought because now we know. How excited do we know once we know? So we're pretty darn excited. But now that we know, guys, still leaves us with Gaethje. And that only leaves Oliveira. Is that the match? Because that's a problematic, that's a problematic booking. Unless you're looking to get Gaethje right back into a world title fight, it's very hard to put him with Oliveira when you're going to tell Oliveira with a win you're going to get a world title fight. I mean, you see the problem. Small problem to have. Small problem to have. But I'm just sharing with you, this one catches me by surprise. Hooker could not be a different matchup for Chandler. And by the way, as I got this information, 
and I just came to it. So I'm going to need to go look into this. I'm going to do a better job when I talk to you guys next. I need to know the placement on the card. I need to know who else is on that card. I believe that is a supporting, supporting cast role. But it's relevant to know. Are they going five or are they going three? Very relevant to know, particularly for Chandler, whether Chandler knows it or not. Your first time in the organization, no matter what a stud you are, and he most it's just it's just different. It's just different. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, but it will be a one-off. It will be a unique evening, and as soon as you walk out, you will be one of the guys, and you've been there forever. You need that one time, and I only bring that to you because the only thing that stress does in a match is create a fatigue. You will often hear some jerk announcer share with the audience which athletes feeling the pressure. It's a really weird thing because both athletes are feeling pressure, and say, who gives a damn? Well, there is one reason you would care. There is one thing that pressure does, which is it just creates a fatigue. And any sport that any of you have played, you've all done something. It could have been in PE class, and you, play, but you've done something, right? You could practice a sport. It could, be, it could be baseball, and you could go practice it for two hours and not be all that tired when you're done. But if you come to play a game and you only go in in certain spots at equal 8, 9, 10, 11 minutes, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to visit the water fountain, you're going to visit the Gatorade bucket several times. Well, what's different? It's the same thing. Why can I do it two hours in practice? I can't do it 11 minutes here. Stress, pressure creates a fatigue. It's a very real thing. It's not one guy is mentally tough and one guy is weak. It's an actual chemical within your brain. It can release something called adrenaline that can then give you a fatigue. It could make you sore and stiff the next day. It's science. It's a very real thing, but I bring that to your attention because if Chandler is to walk into a five-round atmosphere his first time in an organization, it's going to be relevant, particularly against somebody like the hangman who's ready to go seven rounds. He's ready to go nine rounds. Now, Chandler's Mr. Five-Round Clubs himself, okay? Don't don't think I'm all of a sudden making some excuse for Chandler. I'm not doing that. I'm sharing with you a dialogue of some of the moving parts that are going to go into the placement on this card. And it's an analysis that other people don't bring to you. And they don't bring it to you because they're not as good as me, and they're not as good as me because they haven't been there. I've been there. Five rounds is a long night. Three rounds is very hard, but it's different. It's a talking point, and we are going to follow up on this. So we just got an announcement that Neil Magny is going to take on Michael Chiesa. First off, I don't know that Chiesa has ever looked better than as of late. Second off, good news for Chiesa because Magny's a straight-up gangster. Magny, who gets no credit from anybody has done everything right. He just tied some record that's only held by George St. Pierre. I can't even think off the top of my head. He just tied a record within that division that's held by George St. Pierre. He's won some insane amount of fights. Oh, and by the way, he's the real deal, and he's the only 70-pounder that legitimately stepped up to Chimaev when Chimaev was available. You guys will remember when nobody would fight Chimaev, and all of a sudden Chimaev signs to fight uh, Leon. And then, like, four guys call out Shemaya, but it was all BS, right? I mean, just just happened to work out. They called the guy out when they couldn't. Do you guys remember this crap? We see it all the time. Fake tough guys. Shemaya becomes available. Something happens with Leon, and only one guy stepped in. And not only did he step in, 
say I would do the fight, he began to campaign and lobby for the fight. Lobbying for a fight is totally different than raising your hand. You get credit either way, but one guy's a tough guy and one guy's a gangster. Period. Magni is the latter. Now, I bring that to you because Magni didn't get the fight, which broke my heart. I thought, well, he should get the fight. I mean, this is how this business works. If a fight gets disrupted, you keep one half of the fight and you find the next best thing, and that's exactly what had happened there. He didn't get the fight. They wanted to preserve Leon. So they just took that whole package, which is a rare thing to do, but they did took that whole package and they're going to move it to another date. Okay, great, but what happens to Magni? Magni, history says something good happens to Magni. You step in to do a favor, you get a favor. I don't think that uh, Kiesa is that, but a placement on the card certainly is. This is going to be a feature match, and it's a very meaningful match because Kiesa is all of a sudden a man of multiple tricks. Like, Kiesa had a moment in his career where he was Joe Wrestler and nothing else, and then all of a sudden he has like three fights where he's Joe Kickboxer. And then all of a sudden, I mean, go back to the Carlos Condit fight. Oh, he's Joe Jiu-Jitsu. Like, you don't know what Kiesa's going to do. Kies is a very rough customer who understands the sport very well. He's very durable, and he's not afraid to compete. And if you ever speak to Michael Kies, I mean, like Michael Kies is one of the best guests I have ever had. And I've known Kies a period of time. He lives right behind me. I'm in or- Oregon. He's right across the bridge in Washington. We're neighbors, workout partners, friends. But even with that said, I didn't know how intelligent he was as it pertained to the sport until he was a guest on the program. And I had one of the most fun times. It was, it was right before Connor was going to fight Floyd. And the whole world was down on that fight, myself included. Connor has no chance. Connor's out of there in three minutes. Nothing to see here. Cash grab. Waste of time. Kiesa changed everything. Kiesa's like, whoa, 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 Chael. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He said, first off, you've got to understand how a promoter looks at this. Promoter's looking at this on what if. What if Connor catches him? What if? Connor knocks him out. What if Connor is too big? What if the whole Southpaw business that Zab Judah gave Floyd problems with? Connor gives Floyd problems. Changed my mind completely. Not only did he change my mind, my mother heard the show, made me fly her to Vegas, and made me buy her a, a ticket, which was $1,800. I mean, not for nothing. Kiesa cost me a few bucks, but he cost me a few bucks because he was so intriguing, and he goes down as one of the best guests I ever had. How does that play into this fight? What well, plays into the fight? It plays into the fight because Mil- Neil Magny isn't just a tough guy. Neil Magny's strategic. He's one of the few guys ever that understands range. You always hear about range. Well, this guy's got a reach advantage. Who gives a damn? Nobody knows how to use it. John Jones knows how to use reach, and then you got to go back all the way to Tommy the Hitman Hearns. Well, except for Magny. Magny actually understands. He understands how to do a teep. He understands when to kick the head. He understands when he's at a distance. He can put a hand down to give extra power because the opponent can't return. Magny's very smart, and he's getting better. And he's already tied a record. I should be able to quote it for you right now. He can already he already tied a record of the great to have ever done it in George St. Pierre. Big fight, big opportunity. I love the booking. 2021 is looking nothing but promising right now. Dana came out. He clarified the heavyweight division, but he clarified it in twofold. He said, Steve Miocic will fight Francis Ngannou in March. Winner will fight John Jones. Now, 
it has appeared for about five and a half months that John Jones is going to heavyweight. It appeared that way because he left the light heavyweight belt. They went up, picked up, and moved on. And then he said, I'm moving to heavyweight. But somewhere along the way, Israel Adesanya moves into the division. Adesanya versus Jones is the biggest fight the industry can make. Now, that will change. That will change rapidly. It'll be something else in two months. But as of press time, the biggest fight, the dream fight, the mega would be those two. So it appears, oh, and then along the way, Dana White said, you know, John Jones isn't a heavyweight yet. I know you guys all keep saying that. And I know he keeps saying it to you. But until he calls and says it to me, he's not a heavyweight. I bring that to you because Dana brought some clarity today where we must make the assumption reasonably that John has made that phone call. Okay, fine. Adesanya is off the table. Now, as I'm telling you, Jones versus Adesanya is the hottest fight. I'm right. But that can change. You will remember when Daniel Cormier versus John Jones was the mega fight. That was this year. I apologize. That was last year. But then Stipe beats Daniel, all of a sudden, Jones is off the table. DC, Stipe, part three, biggest fight. So this biggest fight business is something that you can recapture. And I do think you're going to have a very telling story because you're going to have a very different match if you're juxtaposing Stipe Miocic against John Jones versus Francis Ngannou versus John Jones. You're having a totally different conversation. Stipe, stylistically, is more likely to beat John Jones. We would conclude. John Jones would conclude he would have more problems with Francis. John has been very open to say, I would like to gain some size. Some of these much bigger guys, I'm going to go in there and give up 30 pounds of steel. Right? I mean, these guys are built the right way when you're talking about a Francis Ngannou. I think John Jones's opinion has to matter. So I think we have to listen to John Jones, and we may come away that uh, Francis has one way to win, to knock him out. Okay. I wouldn't disagree. I don't think he's going to take him down and hold him there. I don't think he's going to throw up a triangle choke. I agree with you. He's got to knock him out. What's against the numbers for Francis and John Jones doesn't get knocked out. What's against the numbers for John Jones is Francis knocks anything out that he touches. I mean, it's it, right. You start to see where this this is interesting all around. I'm trying to talk about oh, how are we going to put a band aid on? We're not going to get Johns and Adesanya the biggest fight they ever. Be. Hey, this could be the biggest fight. This could be the biggest fight in a damn hurry. But it's two very different fights, and you start to ask yourself who. I'll tell you who you're going to cheer for. Okay, same as I am. We though it won't be an agreement, but we will adhere to this. We will cheer in the Stipe Francis match, not for who we want to see win between Stipe and Francis. We will cheer for who we want to see beat John Jones. It's a point of beat John Jones, right? John has done everything in the sport except get beat. That might hurt his feelings, but that's just a real thing. John, you're Victim of your own success. People want to see something new. That would be the only thing new. So I just bring that to your attention. Can either of them do it? I know John has been very open to say I got size problems. I do not want to mention names, but if I did, you would know them. Big names have come and gone as sparring and training partners of John Jones. Big, heavyweight names. Not one of them even privately claims to have got the jump on John Jones in practice. 
But somewhere within those workouts, John has been very open to tell us he felt a differential in the size. So you have to defer back to that. The other side of the coin, I mean, if you were just to close your eyes real fast, Stipe's going to move around a lot. He's going to hit you a lot. He's going to be very hard to take down. Daniel Cormier, who was a two-time Olympian, got two takedowns in three fights with Stipe. He's hard to take down. Got a proven fact, we got it. Doesn't mean John can't do it. Doesn't mean he can't. It's going to be hard to do. That's the statement I'm making. If John took Francis down, it would be very unlikely that Francis gets up. Now, we only have one example of Francis being down, but it happened five times. It was against Stipe Miocic, who took him down one time per, per round, and he never got up. So it's just one of these matches. So, go, man, this is just two different contests. Completely. And we don't have to worry about what would happen with Stipe or what would worry about Francis. Shut up. You're going to be annoying if you start doing that. Let Stipe and Francis fight. Let John take on the winner. So for the rest of us, put a pin in it. All right, guys. Fun show, fun recap. A lot happened over the weekend, and a lot more is going to happen this week. Good news. We will be back on Friday to discuss it all. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome. Thanks for listening to Your Welcome with Chael Sonnen. Download new episodes every week at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.